Hello, folks. Welcome to the Genuinely Interested Podcast. My name is Roy Bensfi. I'm your host. And this week we have Sophie Gamond. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Even though I heard her say it, I just, uh, you know, with the French pronunciation, I just hope I'm actually getting it correctly. But uh, she is known for basically taking amazing photos of dogs and specifically pit bulls. She has a huge following on Instagram. And she's pretty much changed. I don't want to say single-handedly because there's other people out there, obviously, but she, you know, she has done a lot for pit bulls and changing the persona and the what people perceive pit bulls to be, which is vicious and strong and, and they'll eat your kids and they're actually the complete opposite. And that's why she used these flower crowns. You know, she was her original thought was, what is the most feminine thing I can do? And she came up with this idea. And then, you know, she tells the story of how that whole thing unfolded, which was, you know, very fascinating and very funny as well. And it just, I think it speaks of taking that first step when you're not really sure where the rest of the staircase is going to lead you type of thing. She wasn't really sure where this is going, but she had a deep will and a deep wanting to do this project. And it just gradually became what it is now, which is this massive project. And she has books out and she's been on talk shows. And I think it speaks to when you're doing something from a genuine place with enough time, with enough dedication, it'll really grow and and, and bloom into something beautiful. And that's what this thing has done. And on top of that, she's doing an amazing job advocating for these dogs who really need people to speak up for them. They're the sweetest dogs in the world. They literally couldn't hurt a fly. And again, it's it, I don't want to say that all dogs are X. There's individualism that goes into this. and But overall, if you're a good person and you treat your dog with, with kindness and respect and love, that dog is going to be a great, great dog. And he's going to be a companion and he's going to love you and it's just how you treat them. It's the same with the kid. It's the same with any person. If you treat people like shit, that's what you're going to get back. And dogs are actually not that different. You know, I applaud her on taking such a um, divided issue like pit bulls and really changing hearts and minds. And yeah, I had a really fun conversation. Honestly, it, it like halfway through, it almost felt like I was talking to a friend from back home that I just haven't seen for in a long time. I had a really fun chat with Sophie. We shared a lot of the same things. We both came to the U.S. X years ago. We both got into photography. We both love pit bulls. We both have, I think a lot of, you know, we're both living in, in Brooklyn. So just a lot of shared experiences. And yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. I'll put all her information in the show notes. And as always, be sure to subscribe, leave reviews. Uh, you know, it really helps. And yeah, man, just enjoy this podcast of this week's guest, Sophie Gamond. The Genuinely Interested Podcast. Hey, Sophie. Hi, Roy. How are you? A little hot today in New York, but otherwise, you know, okay. <laughs> really? Because in Connecticut, it's it's actually really nice today. Uh, well, it's very humid here. I don't know how the humidity is up there. 
I mean, it, it was very humid a few days ago. And then last night we had a massive thunderstorm. Yeah, us too. Yeah, we were just sitting outside like in here. It's kind of like half in, half out in, in this room. And all of a sudden, like I felt the house shake. Mm. It was just, I've, I don't think I've ever heard such a like a loud thunderstorm for like maybe five or 10 minutes. But it was just like, it was like right. a roar. Oh, I love it. Yeah. How are your dogs doing with uh, thunderstorms? They don't mind it actually too much. Like I know a lot of dogs that react badly to to, li- right. to lightning or fireworks or you know, loud noise, but my dog kind of jumped up like, "Huh, what was that?" But not yeah. like they don't like run under the the, the table or anything. Oh, that, that's good. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And your dog, because I know there's fireworks every night in New York City now. Yeah, yeah. So our dog, thankfully, is super chill with that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I know so many dogs that are completely petrified. And growing up, our dogs could smell a storm hours before it would happen. They would start really? prancing around and like whining and hiding. And we were like, what's going on? And then sure enough, co- you know, a couple of hours later or a few hours later, there would be this massive storm. So we always knew. Wow. It was the weirdest That's thing. Like, yeah, it's like uh, instead of having an app, you just you, you have right. a dog. <laughs> exactly. Like six, seven hours I guess it felt the pressure change or something. I don't know. It was weird. Yeah. Well, animals have that too. They said that in, um, I think it was in, uh, I, I don't know if this is true. I never looked into this, but it's something I heard that before the tsunami, all the land animals, none right. of them died because they had some intuition or, or some prior knowledge that something like this is going to happen and they all right. fled inland. I mean, it would make sense that they sense what's happening in the air and, you know, while we're too busy on our iPhones ourselves. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They have that sixth sense, right? They know they can smell things from like miles away. They, you know, every time I come, like today we came home and uh, maybe half an hour before I was playing with some dog and like immediately, as soon as you get home, right? They just smell you. Where were you? Yeah. Who is she? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so so you said that, you know, growing up you had uh, dogs. Where did you actually grow up? In France, uh, in a small town outside of Lyon. Okay. Uh, you know, we had a big uh, garden. So our dogs were mostly outdoor dogs. You know, they didn't really sleep in our bedrooms or anything like that. So it was weird. Like coming to New York, it was such a different way of interacting with your dogs. And I'm like, oh, I never knew this was possible. I thought only crazy people put sweaters on their dogs and slept with them, you know. <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah, New York has a lot of crazy people, so it's 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 half, yeah. I mean, so, so there's no like uh, intermediate. So you went straight from living in this like smaller town. You didn't go to like to Paris and live there for a while. You just from no, small town I, to New York City. Yeah, I lived in. Uh, I studied in Lyon. I studied law, so I went to university in Lyon, and then, so that's a pretty decent sized city. But it's it's like Paris, but smaller and and much nicer. I, I don't like Paris, actually. <laughs> I know Americans are always like, what? Paris is the best thing in the world. Yeah. Um, not my jam. Uh, but then I lived in Geneva for a while. And then I met my husband in Switzerland. And then we decided to move to New York together. So I, yeah, basically Geneva is also a medium-sized city, but it's international. And then New York was really like the big, yeah, it was the biggest city I've lived in. Yeah, New York's. I mean, New York's massive. I uh, I also moved here about seven, almost seven years ago now, and it's it's a uh, it's a shock because there's not a lot of big cities like New York across the world, right? And the history and the culture and this uh, anybody can make a type of atmosphere. Can they though? <laughs> no, but that's the. That's, I know. That's no. The dream. 
that's the branding. Sorry, like, oh, yeah. I, make it. I think, but I mean, you're but you're the story that of someone that can make it, right? Like you, true. You're essentially it. I mean, true. I I don't. I guess New York was part of it. Um, uh, but it's true. Like sometimes I reflect on how where I come from, that small town, and like just you know, lo- loving animals, but just not really thinking about a career with them and then how things kind of you know fell together I kind of think that I could have done this in any city really but New York definitely has that uh drive and energy and whenever you have a project people say yes of course what do you need you know back in Europe in France especially if you if you have a project people say no why would you want to do that (laughs) the the first answer is always no in France and here it's always yes and that was very uh, you know, exciting and refreshing and surprising. Yeah. I had to relearn how I interact with people and how I talk about my work and all that. Cause I was so used to apologizing and be like, I'm so sorry, but you know, do you think we could possibly, you know, and here it's like, you have to, you know, open the door and say, I'm doing this and you're going to do it with me. You know, it's just such a different way of doing it. Yeah. I, I, I honestly, I don't think you could have done this anywhere in, in the world, in any big city. I think New York is, and maybe and maybe a few other big cities in the US are like you said it's unique there's um there's some entrepreneurial right there's an atmosphere energy. Yeah. energy that New York has where people create especially creative types they come to New York and they're like okay I'm going to take this on because everyone here is you know whatever industry you're in there's so many other people that are doing it just as well in New York City, right? So you have to be the best. And that kind of propels you to try to be, I think, better. So you see the best photographers here, the best people in, in tech startups, oh the best people in, you know, restaurants and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's right? true. I think you're catching me at a moment in my life where I'm I'm falling out of love with New York and I think I'm ready to move on to, to another place. Uh, that energy that you're describing, you know, I think maybe at the beginning it was it was overwhelming, but it was also great, very freeing. But now it's becoming very oppressing, actually. So it's interesting. I think uh, different phases of your life, maybe, like when you're younger and maybe a little hungrier, or you're still figuring out what, what your dreams are, what you want for yourself. And then once you achieved a couple of these things, or you're like, oh, that actually didn't make me happier or more grounded or whatever. And so you continue to seek you know, happiness and peace. And I don't know that New York is the place for happiness and peace. And that's what I want in my life right now. So that's probably why I sound like a Debbie Downer about New York. <laughs> no, you like sound like thought. me. No, no, you sound like me. I'm exact. My wife tells me all the time, you're a Debbie Downer. I'm like, I'm, I don't, I'm not a Debbie Downer. I'm just, I'm realistic. Like there's, yeah. I feel like there's a point of, of you just, you know, if you look at these people that have been to New York for 30, 40 years, they're all, uh, I don't want to say a little unhinged, but they're not, <laughs> they don't have this state of calmness or, right. or, or I don't know, something that I would be looking for in, in myself 20 years from now. Right. And, and New York, like you said, I think it's a great place initially because it's all these hungry people and everyone wants to make it. But there's a point like right now, I'm, I've been in Connecticut for a few months and originally we left because of COVID, right. but like I don't really want to go back. I'm I'm pretty happy right here. Like there's beautiful nature all around me. There's hiking trails. There's a bear in our backyard a few days ago. I was like, this is you know you don't get this in New York, and um, it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I think you and half the city you know had the same thought. Yeah, and for us, it's definitely the pandemic has has solidified 
what we were starting to feel anyway. But when I hear that New York tough, it, it disgusts me. Like I hate when people use that expression because it shouldn't be that tough to live and to have a decent life for yourself. And the thing that really bugs me about New York now is how they managed to transform the misery into this badge of honor. Like, you can make it to New York. Yeah, but no, bitch, because, oh, I'm sorry, excuse my French, but no, you can't really because <laughs> I saw explicit on every episode, so I figured, oh, I guess I can oh, yeah, say yeah. You can say all the bad words you want, feel free. Right, but, I use it all the time. But yeah, no, you know, life shouldn't be that hard. You shouldn't be living in, in a dirty city with rats carrying pizzas. It's cute, but you know what? It's not cute. And people can't pay healthcare and people, you know, are struggling and living in, in shitty apartments and like life shouldn't be tough like this and the fact that new york has created that whole like narrative around how it's amazing to be a tough new yorker it's starting to really make me feel uneasy like this is not how humanity is meant to thrive and be and you know so yeah anyway sorry <laughs> i'm like killing the new york dream one story at a time that's why people tune in. They want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear the the branding. I think that the U.S., you know, for the longest time, it's been amazing at a lot of things. But the best thing that it's done is it's branding around it. Like, you know, you can achieve your dreams here. And this is the number one place. And it's the best country on earth. And, you know, there's some truth to that. But there's also a lot of other countries where you can be very successful. And they offer free health care. And they're really yeah. amazing countries. And they best air quality in the world, et cetera, et cetera. So it just, it depends on what perimeter you're looking for, what standard of living you're looking for. But in New York city, I, you know, I think now before people were, were, they were drawn or they were, they had to be locked in because of location, right? You had to be at a specific right. brick and mortar place because that's your office and that's your job. I think now when we're realizing that we actually don't have to be in a physical location and the internet opened up all these opportunities, people are like, wait, so for $3,000 that I'm paying for a one bedroom, I can actually have a, a three or four bedroom house somewhere, you know, a few hours away, but it's, it's just as good. And right. it's probably even better, you know? Yeah. And it's true. The pandemic has completely transformed the landscape now. My husband has been working from home through the pandemic in a tiny one bedroom and uh, and it's actually been kind of okay and his company gave up their office space and now they're all going to work remotely. So it's really transforming the way everything is and I hope that it's going to kick New York you know, to become a more humane city where rent are more affordable and all that. So, I mean, I feel like we're diverging from my initial conversation yeah. plans, but no, no it's part of it too. Cause you know, the way dogs live in New York is kind of what led me to work on all my dog projects. Cause when I moved here, I was like, wow, this city is, whew, that's intense. And there were so many dogs way more than I would see in France. And I was like, I wonder how dog dogs can like adapt to this environment that is so unnatural. Most of them have never touched grass with their paws, you know, and it's like such a weird lifestyle for dogs. And that's kind of what led me to this whole universe. So maybe we can, you know, go back a little bit. How did you initially get into photography? Um, photography has been with me for the longest time, but uh, I think when I was about 10, I saved money to buy myself a little camera. Um, photography was kind of a way for me to create intimacy with people without really having to talk with them. So I love taking portraits from a distance, for example, like stealing moment um, with my family in particular. I was a very introvert child, very misunderstood. 
And um, I, I, I was very depressed and very unhappy as a kid. So I think photography was that way in. And then I stopped for years. I took it back uh, in high school a little bit and I stopped. Then I discovered digital photography in the you know, early 2000s, mid 2000s. And um, I was like, wow, that's kind of amazing, the possibilities. So I picked up photography again. And then when I moved to New York is really when I only had my camera, basically. you know. And back then I was uh, directing a photo magazine. So I was interviewing a lot of photographers. And after a few years of doing that, I was like, I think I'm ready to try, you know, and, and take photos and, and just see what I have to say with my camera. So all these things came together. And then in New York, I was like, okay, I have a camera and uh, I guess I'm going to start taking photos and see what happens. But I never thought of it as a career. It was more a way for me to get to meet people and to have relationships without having to talk too much. Like the camera was kind of in between us, you know, and I like that distance that it created. Yeah, the camera is a great uh, icebreaker. It's kind of, and, and it's, you have two icebreakers because you have the camera and you have dogs and dogs right. are also great icebreakers between people, right? Like they, they form conversations where you wouldn't otherwise talk right. to that person. I don't, I don't want icebreakers. I want buffers, if that makes sense. Like, <laughs> yeah. I was never really, <laughs> also because my English was not what it is now. And just having conversations with people was, you know, oh, daunting. So for me, the camera is more like a buffer. I can be around people and I can be a part of something meaningful, but I'm hiding behind my camera a little bit. I'm the fly on the wall or I'm, you know, like I hate when people try to have a conversation with me during a shoot because I can't do both. And I like it like that, you know, yeah. it takes me so much energy to actually talk with people that when I'm behind the camera, it, that it just feels good, you know, to be a part of something without having to do all this work. So you said you, you met your husband in, in Geneva and then what kind of catapulted you to, to move to New York City? Uh, well, my husband is Swedish and so we only had English as our common language. So we figured let's live somewhere where we both speak the language so that we're both kind of on an equal, you know, place. Like uh, I think starting a couple, if you don't live in a place where you both kind of equals when it comes to the language or the culture or things like that, uh, I think that would have been, that would have made our relationships way more difficult. So we looked at, you know, maybe London, but he hated London. So we thought maybe, ah, how about New York? And then he asked at work and they actually were looking to transfer someone to New York in his uh, company. So it kind of happened like that, like pretty easily, you know, I have to say. Wow. Do you know, have you learned any, uh, any Swedish? You picked up anything? Um, <laughs> we don't go if often enough, but I certainly knew uh, a few dirty words and <laughs> expressions yeah, yeah. the first time I met the mom. Uh, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's standard. Every time you learn a new language, the first things you have to learn is the dirty, the dirty words. You know, even if you don't want to, I guess that's kind of how it happens. And uh, my husband is cheeky, so I think he would have probably just enjoyed me you know, putting my foot in my mouth in front of his yeah. <laughs> I also learned a Christmas song, I think was the first thing I learned. One of the first thing I learned. And then when we got married, I, I said my vows in Swedish. Oh, wow. And that's about it. <laughs> I was like, I commit to you in Swedish, but that's where it ends. Okay. Everything yeah. else is going to be in English. <laughs> yeah. I, we've seen like me and my wife, we've seen a few uh, shows in Swedish recently. And uh, it's such an interesting language. Because uh, it's, I don't know, it's one of those languages where it's so, 
it's not similar to anything else that, that I've heard before. Right. Like I, w- I wouldn't be able to pick up anything if there was, if there weren't any subtitles, you know, other languages you're like, oh, okay, I, you p- like French or Spanish. I'm like, I understand this and that, but right. zero. Swedish. Yeah, Latin yeah, languages, I guess, uh, is way easier. Yeah, I, I, for me, it always sounds like drunk German and English and, and like <laughs> a bunch of things, but drunk, you know, <laughs> it's definitely a weird language. So you got here to the U.S. and how was that initial transition? Like you, you're saying, like, I, you know, you picked up a camera and you were looking for some sort of a buffer the, you know, how long did it take you to you maybe felt comfortable or? You know, it's so weird because in my mind, it feels like it was forever. And still now I'm struggling. But when I look at the actual chronology, uh, I think I arrived end of August. And then by mid-October, I was already registered in a photo class because I figured that's a great way to kind of get my footing here. And I was already working on my first uh, photo, like, uh, project, you know. So... Within like a month, I was already pretty active into searching and, and thinking about what, what I wanted to photograph here, like stories that interest me and all that. So happened pretty quickly, I guess. But yeah, it felt forever. Yeah. Do you, do you think it's a little hard maybe for, for people who come from uh, from abroad to... If, for me also, like, I don't know, there's just, there's a cultural thing that, you know, you're used to the culture of, of the country you come from. And if the, the later in life that you come to to the U S or any other country, you already have so many years of being used to that culture mm. and coming here to the U S I just feel like it's, it's a, it was very welcoming, but there was definitely, I didn't fully transition. There was just like one thing or, or just something I was just like, I, I'm not fully committed or I'm not being fully accepted or I'm not fully integrating into the culture. Cause I still have a little bit of the, of whatever I have that is from back home. Wait, so where is back home? Israel. Israel, okay. I didn't realize that, sorry. Yeah, yeah, I think for me, you know, one of the things, like when people think about immigrants, and especially in America, like it's so loaded, it's so political, there's like all these feelings and emotions about it, right? But when you think about it, from really realistic, basic things, being an immigrant means that you stand in a grocery store and you have no idea what to buy. You don't know the brands, you don't know the produce, you know, you don't know, is this brand the shit brand or is this brand a good one? You know, yeah, like you have no point of reference for anything except Barilla for pasta because it's international or whatever, you know, but, and that's what I remember from the experience of, of, of being here is really like, where do I begin? I have no idea like what laundry detergent, you know, I should buy. Like it's really starting from almost zero when it comes to just basic daily stuff, plus the language, of course, and then all the subtext and the culture differences and how you talk to people and the expressions, like there's so much subtleties. And then when English is not your first language, you constantly have a second thought of like, ooh, did I say that wrong? Like, did I use the wrong word? Am I going to offend? So humor, for example, I was a very funny person in French. But in English, like the first couple of years, it was so frustrating to me. I would think about it like a comeback or a joke. And then my brain had to process it in French and then translate it in English. And then by the time it was ready to come out, it was like, oh, the moment is gone. And I felt so (laughs) dumb. Yeah, I missed the punchline. And it made me feel like so frustrated in my social interactions. And so I think when people think about immigration, they should also add those layers into it. Like you're talking about a person who has been stripped of a lot of their comfortable you know the things that they're able to latch on to 
And suddenly they stripped all those things and they're just like wobbly and they're like, whoa, what's happening here? And they're trying to connect and build a life. Like it takes a lot. And it takes understanding from the people around you too, the, the, the communities that welcome you. Like I wish people were more aware of that. Everybody should live in a foreign country for like a year in their life so they can really understand what it means to be a citizen of this world, you know? Yeah. And I think everyone should go and, and live in, because I, I, growing up, I, I moved around a lot and uh, I, I grew up in Africa a lot of years. Oh, wow. I think people should go and live in some developing nations for a while to realize how lucky wow. they are to live in a Western country. Because I think a lot of people in Western countries take it for granted. But also like initially when I came here, I felt very like everyone was very hospitable, very welcoming. Everyone's super polite. I was like, I love the politeness. I was like, everyone's so polite. Everyone's very nice. People are saying hi on the street. You know, you go to like just over the top niceness, right? You go into customer service stores, like right. I'm sure from you, you're from France, you, you realize this. As well. <laughs> They're like the nicest people <laughs> yeah. in the world, right? They're like bending over backwards to help you out. And, yeah. but then like, but I, I, for me personally, I don't know if this is true for everyone. I just found it a little harder to penetrate beneath that superficiality. Right. Like I, I was never able to make like maybe one or two people, but to make really deep, meaningful relationships was a little bit harder for me here right. because, you know, again, like I, I come from a place where we speak our minds and sometimes, like you said, like it's, it's not the, maybe the most politically correct or whatever it is. And people get offended by it. And then you kind of rub someone the wrong way, but that wasn't the intention. No, of that was course. Like, you know, it's uh, messy, yeah. but it's like, that's what it means to be human. And it's true. Like the, the cultural difference between, and I'm going to talk about Europe or France in particular, where it's true. we, we complain a lot, but we also say things how they are. We're very emotional. We're loud. We're, you know, politically incorrect. And all these things makes us human. Like, that's just how it is. And and here, um, relationships well, felt very sanitized. In New York, they, they felt very, um, um, what's the word? Um, you know, when every, everybody wants something out of the relationship. Um, transactional. Yeah. You know, here, everything yeah. felt very transactional. If you want to hang out with a friend, you have to book a month in advance. Like, let's have a drink next month. Like, all these things were so weird to me. And because I was also trying to find my footing and create my new family, I left everything in Europe, you know, my friends, my family, my my job relationships, like everything. Here, I had nobody but my husband. And so, like, to have to rebuild that entire network from scratch with people that when they say yes yes they don't really mean it necessarily or they don't mean it the same way that maybe back in france this in france it's hard to get to the yes but when you do like it's a commitment it felt you know and here the yes was came very easily to people but it wasn't always a commitment um and also yeah just that transactional nature of relationships here was something that still i struggle with and also because i don't want to become like that so i have to constantly fight it you know fight against the the grain a little bit like it's it's a weird but yeah i don't know it's it's learning to build relationship in a different culture is a really big challenge for sure let's talk dogs because i think that's uh yeah no we're going down the <laughs> this episode should be about no, immigrating I, to the u.s <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're we're doing the opposite we're getting people to leave. <laughs> But I think dogs, you know, it seems like we share a lot of a lot of things. But, you know, I also love photography and I, I came here to the U.S. And I also that's what I did. I learned photography for the first two oh, years. Cool. I was on a you know, student visa and um, I was also looking up in, in like even my my, my project. I, I ended up shooting animals, different types of animals. And um, 
I think dogs is something that most people like and, and love, but maybe they don't they don't know the full gamut of dogs, right? right? Like what they go through, what, you know, buying versus adopting, all these, you know, puppy mills, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, you essentially have the, the best job in the world. You just get to play with puppies all day and shoot them, right? Sure, I mean, that's a, sure. That's, that's good exactly as, yeah. what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, high level, high level. High level. Uh, yeah, I guess there's, uh, I like what you just said, because that's something that I really learned uh, through the years of working with dogs and that I feel very strongly about. We don't understand 5% of dogs, you know, and I'm not even talking about going into the rescue conversation, which we, we will cover, but just talking about the dog as an animal. I mean, it's kind of the link between animals and humans anyway. Like it's no longer an animal. It's not yet a human, but it's really somewhere in between here. Um, and I feel like I was shocked, you know, when I started my work, I was like, wow, there's not a lot of artists that have dedicated their work to dogs. How weird. Like they've been with us for so long. I mean, you see them on Egyptian, you know, uh, engravings and they've been there for thousands of years. And what a unique um, being, you know. And so I was that was my first reaction when I started. Like, wow, that's weird. Like, there's not a lot out there. And then my second reaction through the years was like, ha, we really don't understand much of them. There's so little research that has been done. We don't really understand how they think, how they feel you know, do they dream? Do they don't? Like, how do they smell? What does the tail mean when it does this? We know a little bit or we think we do, but I think we just barely scratched the surface. And that to me is fascinating. And it's also kind of weird. Like they've become such a commodity for humans that we almost don't see them. And the, 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 the amazing, the greatness of dogs at so many levels, they're truly fascinating. So it's funny because people always think I'm, a, I'm this crazy dog person, but I never considered myself as a dog lover. I'm just fascinated by how different um, sentient beings interact and, and just dogs, man. They're so unique. <laughs> we have this unique opportunity to really catch a glimpse of the, the nature world and I don't know, it's just so weird and fascinating, all the things they've learned to make us happy. Like, weird, such a codependent relationship. We can learn so much by just observing dogs, and that's really what fuels my work, basically. And, and how did the idea form of, of going to shelters and shooting shelter dogs? Uh, so when I started, like, really shortly after arriving to the U.S., um, Basically, I was like, what am I going to do with my life? I had nothing and I had my camera. So I signed up for that class and they gave us an assignment and it was basically go to your neighborhood and photograph uh, you know, a person and tell their story in five frames. Uh, it was, I was terrified of street photography, so I signed up for a street photography class because I figured, eh, I may as well just kick myself right into the mix of things, right? So I was walking with my camera, petrified, like, oh, my God, what am I going to say? How am I going to talk to somebody I don't know? And then this weird dude came up to me, and he was like, do you want to take my photo? I was like, uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, I was like, uh, uh, no, not really, but I guess I'll do it. And he was basically my assignment on the silver platter, right? And he started telling me his life story. He was like, oh, I'm just coming out of the psychiatric center here. And like clearly a man that had a complicated, rich persona and history and he was dressed in green from his hat to his shoes perfect like seriously the universe was like here sophie here's your assignment thank yeah. you very much 
And I, I just chickened out. I took a quick photo and I said, thank you, have a good day. And I just walked away. And then I continued walking a little bit and I didn't know my neighborhood. I had just moved here and I saw a vet clinic and it just like, it was like a beacon of light. And I thought, oh, animals. So I pushed the door and I said, could I take a photo of you know, one of the workers here with the animals? And it's for an assignment. And they were like, uh, what? I don't know. Let me talk to the owner. Like it became very suspicious and and then I actually ended up being uh, becoming really good friends with them. And they let me into the clinic. And month after month after month, I was allowed to photograph surgeries. And, and just I would just basically hang out in the exam rooms while they were working with the animals and taking photos. Like It was so weird. Like They really let me in and they became good friends. So in that vet clinic, that's when things started to kind of branch out for me. Um, the first photo I took there was of a dog that was peeking from behind a wall and he looked super worried. And on the photo, he looked like a little boy at the dentist, you know, like there was so much soul and personality and fear and apprehension and all these things mixed up in those eyes. And it was a bulldog with blue eyes. So it was like everything about that face was, was amazing and human. So that photo really kicked it for me. Like it made me realize, wow, how unnatural that we force these dogs to do all these things. And then at the vet clinic, I would see people, you know, spending tens of thousands of dollars on, on treatment for cancer, for their dogs, and like all these things. Then I heard about rescue uh, while working at the clinic. And I was like, what do you mean rescue? Because in France, we have shelters, but the ratio, you know, the number of dogs in shelters, it's a big number, but it's nothing compared to the overall general population. Here it's huge. I mean, the numbers I heard back then, I was shocked how a country like the US, which when you come in, you imagine that big dream and everybody's successful or like, you know, you have so much means at your disposition and uh, dis disposal, sorry. And, um, and then dogs, they were abandoned by the millions every year. So that really shocked me. And I thought, all right, I have a camera. These numbers are weird, man. <laughs> I need to find out more. And then I met a rescuer and she asked me if I could help her with photos. And I was like, of course, yes, I would love to. And then it just snowballed from there. And, and it became something I became very passionate about because it felt like, you know, this is something I can be a part of and I can have a little bit of um, control over my life. Like I, I can have purpose. I can use photography. I can learn new things. Uh, yeah, it was really my my point of entry, basically. And why, you know, why did you want to focus specifically, or is that something that gradually happened, uh, focusing on on pit bull type dogs? Oh, that's you know that really happened uh, progressively because uh, basically then I started offering my photography to local shelters. Uh, so rescues are basically groups that don't have a brick and mortar place, right? They operate on the foster network, which means their dogs usually uh, go to temporary families before they get adopted. So it's a more like a, a moving organization that's that's uh, not tangible, right? So uh, shelters are the ones that have a building and a place with kennels. And yeah. so I started uh, approaching shelters in New York because I figured, you know, working with rescue was a lot of work and it was in in and involved a lot of traveling and it was exhausting a shelter i figured i can put my studio there and photograph 30 dogs in one day if i have to right so it felt like a more efficient way where i could help so many more dogs 
Um, and, you know, I approached a couple of shutters who basically kind of slammed the door in my face, to be honest. And then finally one really? said yes. Yeah. And that shelter, I'm still working with them all these years later. And I love them. Uh, so they're in Manhattan. And uh, uh, they call Animal Haven. And they're actually in, in Seoul. Oh, I know yeah, that. they're fantastic. So they were the first one to say, yeah, sure. You know, and then we became friends and I've been... Uh, I've done a lot with them and they've done a lot for me and it's, it's been an amazing relationship. So basically I started, you know, going there, set up my studio and then each time they would bring pit bulls, I was like, oh no, oh no, oh God. And my hands would become sweaty. And then I just, I didn't even want to touch the dogs. So growing up in France, we have similar prejudice against pit bulls. Basically the entire world has similar prejudice against pit bulls, let's be honest. Yeah. So in France, they also had this image of being these you know, ghetto dogs that belong to, you know, bad people doing bad things. And I remember my parents, you know, commenting, my sister got a bull terrier at some point. And my parents were like, this is so irresponsible. She has children. So very, you know, same stories, really. Um, and so I was really, I had read a lot of horror stories in the media. And so I was already kind of conditioned to really be afraid of pit bulls. And yeah, each time they would bring one on the set, I was like, oh, oh my God, I can't do this. And I would not really interact with the dogs. I would go snap, 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 move on. And it made me feel like a disconnect between the relationship I was building with the shelter staff and the trust that I had for them. And them telling me, yeah, this dog is totally fine. It's a pit bull, but it's fine. And me not being able to reconcile those things together and still have that distrust of the dog when the dog had done nothing to me to deserve that, it made me feel like, okay, you know, I think I, it's, I should do a project on pit bulls, like a, 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 using my camera as a tool to make me understand, make me dive deeper. And that's how it started, really. It was really meant to be a selfish, personal little project to overcome some of my fears and understand the world a little bit better. And one of the things I wanted to do was to kind of photograph pit bulls in a way that hadn't been done before and break that negative image they had. So I thought pit bulls, you know, when you think about a pit bull, you think about chains and spiked collars and cropped ears and, you know, maybe a, a, a dude on a big motorcycle and, <laughs> I don't know, barbed wire and tattoos, something very like toxic masculinity and all that stuff. So I thought, okay, what's the exact opposite of all of that? And for a few months, I just let that idea brew a little bit. Like, what could it be? And, you know, one night I was laying in my bed and I thought, flower crowns. And it just kind of hit me. And I thought, that, that could be an idea. But how the hell do you make a flower crown? <laughs> you know? <laughs> ah, so I bought my first glue gun and I had no idea how to use it. And it was like such a new, entire new world for me. And then I had no idea how to make a flower crown that would stay on a dog's head. And then I didn't even know that the crown would stay on. But, you know, I built a bunch of flower crowns and I contacted the shelter that I knew had a lot of pit bulls. And I told them a little bit my idea. They were like, sure, come, you know, whatever. <laughs> so I had a suitcase of about 20, 30 flower crowns. And I arrived there. And sure enough, it's all these big, strong Brooklyn guys that are basically running the shelter. And I'm like, hi, guys. So I have this idea, you know, stay with me. And I unzipped my suitcase and I revealed a bunch of flower crowns. And I said, I want to put flower crowns on your pit bulls. And they all looked at me like, what? Like, no. And they literally rolled their eyes and kind of like shuffled away. <laughs> I thought yeah, you were crazy. I, I must have looked like this stupid little girly French thing, you know. Uh, and... <laughs> 
luckily there was a, a girl that was kind of cracking the whip at the shelter there. Oh my God. I met so amazing, yeah. so many amazing women in the shelter system. And that girl was like, I, whatever you need, we, we're here for you. And then she just went with it. Uh, but the first model, they were like, so how do you want to do this? I'm like, I have no idea. Like I was still learning yeah. to photograph dogs at that point. I didn't really know how to be assertive on my shoots yet. I didn't know how to make a dog sit. You know, I relied a lot on the shelter staff. And then they're like, uh, I said, well, can you bring maybe a dog that, you know, is going to be kind of chill and maybe, you know, will be okay with the process of me touching them. And they're like, oh yeah, we have the perfect dog. And then they brought that dog out, baby, her name was. And I looked at her and then they looked at me and said, okay, do your thing. And that's when it hit me. Holy moly, I'm going to have to be the one putting the crown on that dog. And I'm like, this is the dumbest idea, Roy, I've ever had in my life. So I looked at my cramps and I looked at, at them and they're holding the dog on the leash and like, yeah, do you think? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I did not think of that when I came up with the idea. Yeah. So here I am, all of a sudden I have these five crowns and I, I have no idea if the idea is going to work. And that dog is scary as hell. And it was a brindle pit bull that had been there a while because nobody wants to adopt darker pit bulls. So they usually linger in the shelter system so she was very sweet but of course i i wasn't sure of that i took the shelter staff word on it and i am here with my little flower crown and i'm approaching her and she looks at me like what do you want from me and both of us in that moment were like i don't know if i trust you and i could see that in her eye and i was like oh my god i'm gonna lose my hands lose my face this is the worst idea i've ever had in my life and then I tied the crown quickly and my heart was beating so fast. And then I scoot back and I grab my camera and I look back at the dog and I, I'm completely expecting her to have destroyed the crown and like be like, yeah, this was a dumb idea. And she was just sitting there with the crown on and super calm. And she looked at me like, so what? You know, like nothing. She had so much dignity. Like when I, when I talk about that moment, like it's really the moment that everything came together for me. And I was like, this project really has something like there's something happening here. Like she trusted me. And in return, I, I figured I'm going to trust her. And from yeah. like one shot, one click of the camera, I had the perfect portrait. And that was the beginning of this journey. That was summer 2014. Um, and wow. yeah, I mean, she really gave me the series, you know, that dog, amazing, such a magical moment. So, yeah, I mean, there, there. That's that's an amazing story. I think like when you do things for yourself and not for, you know, with the, with true intent and not because you want to make money off right. it or you want to be famous. That's when things really work. Yeah. And I think as far as the pit bull aspect, I think there's so many misconceptions. You know, I, I have I have two dogs. I have one pit bull and one uh, pointer mix, and the pit bull. It's like a big stuffed doll, <laughs> basically. Like you can do whatever you can put glasses on, you can put flower, you can you can dress it up. Like they don't care what you do. They're just they're just like like a big doll, you know? And it's the complete opposite. People think they're just rough and tough dogs. And it's basically a land hippo that sleeps and cuddles all day long. And it's a completely different story than what the media portrays. Yeah, absolutely. And I've learned that over the years, you know. Um it's such a deeply ingrained story that we've been told for you know centuries now uh and it's it's very hard to shake off so even as i was doing this project and mind you that was supposed to be a quick summer project i thought i'm going to do five portraits and then i'll move on with my life 
And I never, never anticipated the success that the series was going to bring. Um, and from the yeah. first time I shared the images on social media, like it went viral, like insane viral. And I was like, wait, no, 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 no. And I started getting <laughs> messages, both <laughs> from, you know, the haters telling me I had blood on my hands. And then people supporters who called me their new champion. And I was like, guys, no, wait, <laughs> I don't want any of this. Yeah. You know? All of a sudden, I was like pulled in all these directions, and I didn't even know what I felt about pitbulls. Still, I was still kind of uncovering, and it was still a very intimate, difficult process for me. I also I was attacked by a dog when I was about twelve, thirteen. So I also had like a lot of of you know fear and and like body memory of what it felt like to be mauled by a really big dog. And so all these things were battling inside of me, and I was trying to understand: are pitbulls really like regular dogs, or are they dangerous? Like where where is the truth in all of this and all of a sudden i was asked to do all these interviews and like major you know platforms would ask me so are people's dangerous and i'm like <laughs> so it was like such a roller coaster and i never anticipated it would become so big um but yeah i've learned a lot through the years about pitbulls and dogs in general and really what i say now to people is we have to realize that all dogs are individuals and that's just what it is. And once you've really fully integrated that concept, then breeds don't matter. Because really, it always comes down to the individual dogs. You know, where they were born, how they were raised is part of it too. It's not just nature, it's nurture. And it's a lot of nurture, actually. Um, I've met dog fighters who now can live with dogs and they sleep with chihuahuas in their comfy bed with their, you know, adopters. And they were a grand champion fighter and a dog fighting ring. Like, I've met uh, dogs who were raised as puppies, like completely normal in loving families that turn to be aggressive and have to be euthanized because there is something, they have a mental illness. So they have like, you know, something that snaps in them, just like humans. And really, once you've integrated that concept of all dogs are individuals, I think it really opens the doors to a better understanding yeah, even if you look at you know the, those that Mike Vick oh, yeah. story and uh, <clears throat> and the majority of those dogs that that were that were rescued from that horrific place, they were integrated back into families and you know they're they're completely fine like they were rehabilitated and I think there were a few that were just you know they were too messed up by what they what right. they were <clears throat> what they went through but the majority of them they're inherently good they're they're you know their soul is good their nature is good they're very they're built for families they're they do well with kids like all these things that it's the opposite of what the media tells right. you right there's this image when it comes to pit bulls and i think it, initially it was german shepherds and it was dobermans and then a few years later it was rottweilers and now it's pit bull type dogs and it's just sensationalism and i think when people actually meet pit bulls and again like I, we'll get into what a pit bull is i think it creates a, a trust um or sorry, not a trust, but a, a crack in the media, mm. like in, in, in the trust that you have in media, because you're like, wait, they're actually, they're lying to me. Like, they're just flat out yeah. lying to me. This is oh, not yeah. the truth. And then, you, and then you start thinking like, uh, what else am I being lied to about? Is it just this? Could it be all these other things? And I think that just, it's just, it's, it's not the right thing to do for the media because it's just such, it's so blatant when you meet dog, like pit bull type dogs that they're just, the best dogs. Right. <clears throat> oh, there's a lot of layers that you covered here that I think are super interesting. Um, 
First, you know, what's interesting, there's a, a, an amazing book called Pitbull, uh, The Battle Over an American Idol. And it is written by, uh, wait, I always, uh, I always do a horrible job with her name. Brown, wait, the book is right here. Brownwen Dickey. Uh, it's the Bible when it comes to pitbulls. She did an amazing job. She interviewed, you know, from breeders to rescuers to people who actually were uh, attacked by a pitbull. Like she really covered the full spectrum. And it's such an interesting uh, book, really, if you want to understand the whole idea of, of what happened with pitbulls, uh, this is the read. Uh, it's very well documented. And really, with pitbulls, you know, it was a perfect storm. And um, she does explain where, like, the first breed ban... So basically, when, when people are afraid of certain dogs, they would try to implement bans. So they restrict, you know, that people cannot own these dogs, or maybe they have to wear muzzles or whatever it is. That's called... Um, breed specific legislation so usually nowadays it covers pit bulls so that means for example like cities will ban them like miami dade uh, county for example bans pit bulls uh, that means you're not allowed to own them or maybe you have to pay like extra fees and they have to wear a muzzle at all time like they have a bunch of restrictions around them uh, it also means sometimes you can't find apartments like in new york uh, most places won't allow uh, pit bulls like especially public housing you know won't allow pit bulls so she went back in in her book. She talks about like the first breed ban was actually the Spitz, which was the Pomeranian, the ancestor of the Pomeranian. So it's a, a small, fluffy, yeah. foxy-looking dog, and it was in New Jersey actually. And basically, that dog became very popular with women who were fighting for the right to vote and wanted to be independent and not have kids and have careers. And that was, you know, in the nineteenth century, I guess, late nineteenth century, uh, if I remember well. Um, or early 20th so in that in that you know area and um they decided to ban these dogs because these dogs became the symbol of these women trying to emancipate themselves and literally like in the media they would say oh these women that rather have a dog than children you know they're betraying their kind kind of thing and and it's super interesting when you understand how that ban was born because it was really like yeah men with fat cigars sitting behind a desk telling like this damn woman they're not gonna sleep you know between our fingers and be wild and crazy over there and not have kids and all that so with pit bulls similar thing happened where these dogs be became extremely popular in well first they were popular with high society like during victorian times uh pit bulls were owned by you know wealthy families uh, to farmers like the full spectrum had pit bulls but then they really became um popular in impoverished areas and in the 80s 90s with drug epidemics and all that you know there was a lot of um areas that became really poor and people could not necessarily afford a gun so they started getting dogs instead you know like guard dogs and all that the pit bull became very popular like that and then they started publishing articles about dog fighting, which, which came to light. And this journalist, to talk about the media that you were mentioning before, reveled in the sordid details of dog fightings. And there was um, an undercover operation from the FBI where they went in in a dog fighting operation. And then when all that came out, they made it sound like modern cowboys. It was like this badass dude fighting dogs and they talked a lot about the pride and the excitement and like what it takes to raise a fighting dog so even though they were trying to shed a light to say this is horrible they really glorified it in many ways and so that made it super popular and also super scary 
to people who were like, wait, what? Dogs can actually want to do these things? Dogs can like the taste of blood, which is one of the myths that was propagated. And so because I think people didn't really understand and journalists didn't really understand dog's nature and how you raise a dog to fight and what it takes to actually make a dog fight another dog, like all these things, they, they missed a key education component here to explain to people why this happened. And instead, they just put out there all these glamorous, sordid, glamorous stories of dogs fighting other dogs and killing kittens and loving the taste of blood, and which is all made up stuff. But it really solidified the basis for the myth. And then from now and, and on, you know, hating pit bulls became almost a political thing because pit bulls were the dogs that black or minority communities had. And so it was associated with poverty, with race, with gender. It was toxic masculinity and all these things really solidified the idea of the pit bull. Um, I'm sorry, it's super complicated and I'm giving you like a ton of information. No, no, I, I love this. But, you I know, love like, it. yeah, Keep there's going. so yeah. many layers in the whole concept of the pit bull that I feel like the media has really failed to to grasp. That book does it in a beautiful way. Um, it's super complicated, but basically, yeah, it's it race, it's socioeconomical differences, it's gender. I find it super interesting that most pit bull rescuers that I know of and that I know um, are women. Women? They're like these white... Yeah tiny little woman and i f- but strong, but strong like, of very course. strong um, like, and there's a yeah. bit i forgot uh, the comedian i forgot his name uh, that has a bit about this and he's, he's black and he's talking about like you no know, he's talking about like pit bulls in our neighborhood and we're like oh the beast and everybody is afraid and then here comes this white chick and she puts a sweater on the pit bull and she rescues him and he has this bit and it's amazing because it's really what it is and i always thought you know how interesting that basically these women are by reclaiming the pit bull, we are reclaiming gender. We are reclaiming, you know, minority and like reclaiming the image of the pit bull goes beyond just that dog. I think it goes like to society in general in, in so many aspects of society. I don't know if that makes sense here, but that's what really interests me now about it. Yeah. I mean, there's also that, that it's, it's, it just goes to show you how subjective everything is. Like, you know, I, I've, I have, like I said, I, I've had dogs majority of my life and now I have, uh, you know, a pit bull and a half. <laughs> and, um, the, I can see this, you know, let's say someone comes into the house or someone on the street and they're this really big, you know, burly guy and he's scared of the pit bull. Right. But then there's going to, there's sometimes I'll see this eight year old little girl and she's like, Oh, such a cute doggy. And she comes and she catches it by, by my dog by the mouth and she squeezes it. And it's like, Okay, so this little eight-year-old girl has no problem with the pit bull, but the big dude is afraid of it, and it's all just so subjective, right? right? It's just how you, it, it, what lens do you look at it the is world? It's exposure from? too. Like I would say, you know, of course, the little girl hasn't had a chance to see media stories. She hasn't had a chance mm-hmm. to really hear from people. You know, um, the big, the big dudes, you know, might have read all these media stories or might have met some questionable dogs and their owners. Listen, if I go to some neighborhoods in Brooklyn, I'm not going to ask to pet some of these dogs. And, and yeah. usually it's because you look at the end of the leash and you're like, eh, maybe not. You know? So there are, of course, <laughs> dogs that unfortunately become a liability because of the way they're raised and, and all, not just the way they're raised, well, maybe the way they are not raised. 
you know, so, and of course, like, because you can make you can make a poodle. Oh yeah, and poodles aggressive. are you really aggressive, dog. actually. <laughs> poodles are actually. Yeah. Pretty yeah. I actually, I got bit a few times in my life, and one of the times in my life that I got bit yeah, of was course. A poodle. They actually really they aggressive. Actually <laughs> I would yeah. not want a poodle myself, um, and they kind of yeah, dog aggressive. I mean, I shouldn't say they because then you know I'm doing the same thing people do with pitbulls, yeah. but. What I mean is any breed can be. And of course, that's always the argument that Pitbull's uh, supporters are going to say. Um, but obviously, Pitbull's being a very muscular dog, terrier dogs, basically any terrier, but mostly if it's a big terrier, they're going to have more muscle mass. They're going to be stronger dogs. And they're going to have this this um, drive that other breed, other type of dogs might not have. So the drive is basically the dedication and the focus that you have for a task. So that's why pit bulls are great when you give them a job or like for competition, like jumping, you know, and catching frisbees, like, you know, all this sports competition. People still great in that kind of stuff because they're very easy to train and they have a fantastic drive. Uh, and that's unfortunately what makes them vulnerable to dog fighting, for example. Because if you curve that and you give it the wrong, inst- you attach the wrong instinct to the drive, then, you know, you can create dogs that will fight another dog. Uh, but just to clarify for your listener, maybe that are not familiar with dog fighting, um, I think a lot of people don't really realize what goes into training dogs for dog fighting. It involves a lot of torture. It's not like you get a puppy and then you throw them with another puppy and you make them fight and then you're like, good, good boy. And then they fight. Uh, you starve them. Uh, a lot of dog fighting operation will inject steroids into their dogs and and put them through a very intense regimen of training and running on the treadmill and steroid injections and eating you know loads of meat and protein. Uh, and then they tie them to a very short chain outdoors, so they're usually you know exposed to the element, and they tie them far enough from each other that they can never meet the dog next to them. But the dog is right within reach. And that builds frustration. And then they make them fight for resources. So they starve them and then they throw a little bit of food and they let the dog fight over that resource. It takes a lot of torture to make a dog, uh, to condition a dog, you know, to fight. And I talked once to this amazing man who uh, grew up in the dog fighting um, world and at 14 years old, so I, I guess his, his dad was a fighter and then he was very involved, you know, in, in the ring as well as a kid and a young teenager. And then at 14, he realized, wow, this is actually really messed up. Like he couldn't, he couldn't understand how he could love these dogs and want them to fight like this and hurt themselves. And so he decided he was not going to be a part of that anymore. And instead he became a trainer that specialized in, uh, rehabilitating dog fighting dogs and working with powerful dogs like pit bulls and all that and basically he was able to redirect that drive that these fighters had towards play uh so for example he would use a treadmill the same way a dog fighter would but he would remove all the torture element of it so for the dog stays in control the whole time it's 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 like a mechanical treadmill that they they start when as they start running basically the treadmill starts if they stop the treadmill stops and then they don't put they don't starve them. They don't put steroids. They don't put another dog facing the treadmill. It's just like a relaxed environment where the dog gets to do it at its own rhythm. And the dogs loved it. And he basically used all these dog fighting training techniques 
clean them of all the torture aspect of it, made it playful, and these dogs love it and become these amazing dogs that are able to, you know, answer to vocal cues. Like if you tell them stop, they stop right away because they're trained to, you know, answer. And uh, yeah, he's done an amazing, amazing work. And I, I feel like we need to talk more about these stories because really you, you, you yeah. talking about these dogs' most amazing instincts and personality traits, and what are you going to do with it? You can create, you know, like with any kid, you can create a sociopath or you can create somebody who's going to save the world. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you have to be a special type of piece of shit to do, to torture dogs in that, in that fashion. Um, I just, you know, every time I hear these type of stories about pit bulls, I think of, you know, it's like when you hear something happen, if you have kids, I personally don't, but if you have kids and you hear something, you know, or someone did something to a child, you immediately think of your own. And I do the same with dogs. I'm like, this dog is just, it's, it's a puddle of mush. It's, it's just, it's the sweetest dog. And for anybody to do something horrible to it, you know, it, 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 it literally breaks my heart. So it just, it's something that I just. I don't understand how people do it, but people, but people do it yeah. all over the world, you know? And, 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 and with regards to what you said about that focus, that's so true. And it's so good to divert that into a playful manner. You know, the other day I had her, <laughs> I, 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 for the most part, I have my dogs off leash cause there's a big backyard here, but there's no fencing. And, and my older dog, he's great. He's, he'll, he never runs away. He's very, um, he listens. And, but, but my younger one, she uh she saw oh. a bunny the other day and my god i had to chase her for like six hours <laughs> no, until, like, until like i yeah no she never <laughs> got the bunny like she wouldn't even know what to do with it like even back home we had cats and whenever she would see the cats she would just be very friendly right. with the cats you know she was like cautious at first but then like she was very friendly and i think it's the same I think it's just an interesting it's like oh right. what, what you know what is what is this i've never seen this before yeah let me chase it but my God, man, I, I, I literally ran through like five or six backyards here until I eventually caught her in some backyard. There was some lady doing yoga and I was like, can you just grab my dog, please? And she grabbed the dog <laughs> oh and <my> <laughs> I took her back home. Yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a crazy story. But, uh, if we, you know, the, the other thing is if you look at, like we said, like I said earlier, pit bull type dogs, right? They label any dog basically with a square head right. as a pit bull, right? You can have like a King Corso, Bull Mastiffs, uh, Dog Argentino, Stafford Child, Bull Terriers, American Bulldogs, other Mastiffs. Um, they're, they're all like, and I think for people that don't know, they're just like, oh, that's a that's a right. pity. That's a big pity or a small pity. But they all think it's, it's a pit bull type dog. And they don't really know the difference. And you can't say, oh, every dog with a square head is a dangerous dog you can't say for for regardless that a pit bull is a dangerous dog but just they even make they, they cast that net even wider it's not just the pit bull it's like every dog with a square right. head is and dangerous. that's that's right one of the roots problem of all these legislation that I, I mentioned earlier the breed specific legislation they all are based on subjective physical analysis so uh, when montreal a, a few years ago the mayor of montreal decided to pass a ban on pit bulls and it was a big mess because uh, they have a lot of pit bull families there that were like, uh, hell no, like my dog is normal, perfect, safe, He's never hurt anyone in his life, will never hurt anyone. And the mayor just passed the ban. And I remember that his legal team, when they were trying to defend the ban, because obviously it was a lot of turmoil around that decision, 
they said, well, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, then that's what it is. And there is so little understanding from, you know, the politicians that use all these bands as, you know, getting more votes or whatever it is. Like, it's such a politicized thing to do. Um, when I worked with the Miami shelter, for example, I mentioned earlier that they have a ban on pit bulls. So, of course, their shelter is full of pit bulls that have nowhere to go. Because, yeah, because pit bulls, you know, are bred a lot, you know, by in like, especially maybe like more impoverished communities that are trying to make money and they have a pit bull in the backyard, like breeding pit bulls like this is such a common practice in the US. And that's part of the problem that so many people breed them for money. And, um, and that's also why so many end up in the shelter. Uh, so these dogs have nowhere to go. And I talked to the, um, the person who is in charge of deciding whether, a dog, uh, whether or not a dog is a pit bull to know if they can adopt the dog or not. And they basically use yeah. some kind of old AKC, Animal Kennel, uh, American Kennel Club regulations. So they take a measuring tape and they measure between the ears and between the tail and the neck and like all these different measurements between the eyes, the size of the paw. And then they assess the percentage. Is this like a 50% accurate? Is it like it's such a weird thing? And that's going to decide the fate of a dog. So in the UK... In the UK, they have a ban and um, they do similar things to assess. So they wait till the dog is about six months old to assess. And there was a story a couple of years ago where there was a, a mother and a, a litter of puppies. So they measured every puppy and they, they looked at them and they decided, oh, this one pit bull euthanized. This one not pit bull. Okay, we can save him. This one pit bull. They euthanized half of the litter and I think the mom too, but not the other puppies from the litter because they didn't look like the thing. It's the same litter. It's the same gene pool. Like it's uh, so it's kind of maddening to think that we live in a world where we can build laws that are rely only on physical appearance. That is scary to me. And it's also it's just the you know this is it's man's best friend, right? It's it's a some it's it's a it's a being that sleeps in your bed, stays in your house, gives us so much comfort. It helps us detect bombs. It helps us detect cancer. Uh, there's, you know, it's it's emotional support. It just it has so many different roles. But we euthanize about a million dogs, healthy dogs, each year, and seventy five percent of them are, are pit bull types. And again, like perfectly healthy, they're good dogs. They have no issues. The only problem, and again, like we say, euthanize is just a nice word. They just kill them, kill them, and with with gas or all these different horrible methods and just because we don't have the space for them and i mean there's got to be a better way like these dogs don't need to die there's no reason for them to die so it's it's really complicated um i think the the only way we're going to get out of this is if we start being more strict with breeding and especially i'm talking especially about what we call backyard breeding which is like this you know and hidden operation like some dude bringing together their dogs and having puppies and selling them on craigslist <laughs> you know like that that we need to crack down on these things because these people keep bringing dogs to life that are just like there's no room for them to go and very often um these dogs end up in you know maybe with families that don't really know how to take care of a dog properly or don't have the tools don't have access to dog training don't have access to vets you know a lot of these people might live in neighborhoods where there's no vet 
and they don't have a car. And so these dogs never see a vet. They don't get spayed and neutered, uh, which is super important, especially, you know, in highly uh, populated area with dogs, um, because unneutered male get, tend to get territorial. So when you look actually at uh, the um, bite um, records, you know, when a dog is involved in bites or accidents, and especially pit bulls, when you look at the stories of these accidents, uh, like I think in more than two thirds, it's an unneutered male that was basically defending the territory. And then usually they, they're tethered, so they, they have nowhere to go. And then a kid wandered in their yard and steal their bones. Like it's always this, this horrible um, you know, concourse of circumstances that come together to create this this terrible recipe. So we need to stop breeding these dogs, and we need to stop puppy stores. So you uh, you probably won't find pit bulls in puppy stores, but a lot of cities are already doing it. But in New York, you can go to a freaking store and buy a puppy in the window. Like, how is this still possible in 2020? Like, I I it's it's madness to me. And all these dogs come from horrible places usually puppy meals which you mentioned before and for your listeners puppy meals are basically large breeding operations and usually these dogs live their entire life in a cage and they're basically just possibly bred inseminated often because some of these breeds can't have puppies naturally did you know that like french bulldogs for example that people go crazy for french bulldogs they can't have puppies naturally they have to have cesareans like, why are we doing this? Crazy. Why are we supporting Crazy. the ongoing abuse of animals? And yes, you get your cute puppy and you're so happy you're home with your new puppy. Have you thought about the mom? She's sitting in the cage somewhere in her shit and she'll never going to touch the grass. She's never going to run around and play with toys. She's never going to have a life. And she's going to be sold from breeder to breeder so they can just like inseminate her, like basically rape her over and over and over again her entire life until they, they throw her on the pile of trash because they can't use her anymore like ah. and also a lot of times though the dog that you buy they have a lot of genetic problems because they yeah. do a lot of inbreeding and they've been doing inbreeding for generations so you're getting a dog with a lot of different uh genetic yeah problems. not to mention all these flat nose breed like bulldogs and all that they can't breed pugs stop buying pugs stop selling them as this cute little thing seriously these dogs can't breathe they they're subject to heat stroke super easily because they can't um cool they can't cool down like a dog cools down with his breathing his nose and all that so if you can't breathe you can't cool down like stop promoting these dogs as something cute they're a disgrace to what the worst humanity has to offer, which is to manipulate the genes of dogs to make them look cute before making them healthy. And then you have organizations like the AKC, the American Kennel Club, and I'm sorry, I'm going to shit on them a little bit, that fully support these <laughs> things because they encourage this pure breed. Uh, you can only be registered and get the pedigree if you like abide by all these stupid rules. And for example, corgis have to have their tails cropped like, corgis are born really? with tails, but because the AKC decided, oh, no, the purebred standard is that they, they can't have tails, then when they're puppies, you dock their tails. My neighbors uh, bought a corgi, and they were like, oh, actually, we would like to keep the tail. And the breeder said, oh, no, sorry, we already took care of it, because otherwise she can't be registered. And the AKC makes Jeez. money each time a litter is born. Like, the breeders will pay a fee, basically, to register that litter. So it's all in the interest to maintain those stupid breed standards, which now are killing dogs. And the Doberman, for example, 
um, is going is estimated to go extinct by 2040 because it's so inbred that most of them have a heart disease that kill them before the age of four. But because the AKC really? won't be more flexible and allow new lines, new gene pools into the Doberman, um, they're killing it. There's so much, wow. yeah, there's so much that goes yeah. behind all this breeding debacle. And you know what pisses me the most is each year when I see this stupid media, uh, like, oh, it's all the rage that the golden retriever and is the number it. one breed in the U.S. I call bullshit on that. You know what's the number one breed in the U.S.? It's the pit bull, okay? And it's not a breed. It's a dog. Yeah. But the number one breed registered with the AKC is the golden retriever. And they're trying to make us believe that this is the best dog in the world, where golden retrievers can be super aggressive too. The, the dog aggressive and uh, people aggressive. Like you can get bitten by a golden retriever the same way by you can be bitten by a pit bull or, or a chihuahua. But they, they still feed us this stupid myths and i'm really angry right now the whole breeding thing drives me nuts <laughs> me too me too i mean i i adopted both my dogs and in in, in in the and i just don't see a reason and they you know if you look at healthy dogs Must. for the most part it's yeah. mixed breed dogs like <laughs> made yeah, by yeah. nature my dog's a pit bull my my dog's a pit bull pointer and maybe something else i'm not sure and uh you know knock on wood he is 13 years old he is just as fine as he was when he was six. And, you know, my other dog, oh, she's, you know, she sleeps all day, but she's just as healthy as well. It's just, I don't understand the need to buy this, you know, and, and again, like it goes back to this individualism, right? We think that if we buy a certain dog, it automatically comes with all right. these traits. Like for some reason, you know, if like pit bulls are supposed to be this really active dog and all these different things. My dog sleeps like 26 hours a day. It, it just wants to like, like if it's like, if it's, if it's a little wet outside, you'd be like, no, no, I'm, I'm okay. Let me go back to the couch. So it's just, you're not necessarily getting the traits that you think you're getting with the dog. There's so much individualism that goes into each and every dog. So if you, if you go and you say, oh no, I want this pure breed and they just don't know the cost that's involved. They don't know the, the horrific things that go into it and they don't know that they're not necessarily going to get the dog that right. they think they're and going i mean don't get. get me wrong i think there are some breeders that do things the right way um but those breeders you're not going to find them on craigslist you know you're not and most people and unfortunately <laughs> one of my dog's dog sitter so he's a mutt from puerto rico he's like a little island mix and he has a lot of different things in him. And uh, she watched him over Christmas last year. And her parents came to visit. And they fell in love with my dog. To the point where they even asked, like, if you want to give him, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take him from you, you know. So <laughs> it was very cute. In any case, she takes him. And she's like, oh, my parents were so inspired by your dog. They decided to get a dog. So they just got a Pomeranian from an Amish farm. And I'm like... Um, are you yeah. kidding yeah. How much me? <laughs> and i couldn't I, I usually try to be careful when people tell me about their puppies because i'm like yeah. i don't want to shit on your parrot you just got a puppy it's cute whatever the puppy needs a home too but then i'm like an amish farm like nowadays 2020 people still don't know that amish farm is basically a puppy meal with all due respect to the amish community they're farmers and they view dogs as just like any other farm animals and they breed them in, in filth and cages and like it's it's really a disgrace. And I always tell people, listen, if you want to buy a puppy 
and the breeder tells you, we'll meet you halfway. Don't come to our facility. We'll meet you on the parking lot halfway. That way you don't have to drive all the way. That's because they don't want you to see how the mom lives. They don't want you to see the operation. You need to be able to go and visit the operation and see the mom, meet the mom, meet the family that raised your, your, your puppies. Like All these things are important if you really, truly care about where your dog comes from. It's like when you go to the supermarket and you go and you buy uh, you know, beef and there's a, yeah. there's a picture of this happy cow just frolicking in the field. There is some chicken that, you know, that's just so happy. It's like, that's not where it's coming from 100%. But yeah. there's so many cage buzzwords, free. right? Like um, farm is a Cage free is basically yeah, they're on top of each other in, in a room and there's no cage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of buzzwords or, you know, farm fresh, yeah. which means nothing. Or there's sustainable means nothing. All these I like I I I was in you know I had I had um a CPG product a few years back and you could just see like so much of the right. buzzwords that the user just And you know just to go back to America absolutely. one thing that America is really good at is marketing and it's amazing and when you come from oh, another yeah. country and you learn the power of, of that marketing it's like holy moly they you can really open doors and create you know amazing things but the downside is that I feel like marketing is so powerful in the U.S. And it goes it, it's basically above anything else. And it feels the idea of capitalism as this self-made man thing using marketing at all costs. And there's no protection of the customer. And there's, no, there's very little regulation. You can say pretty much anything. You turn on the TV and you see lie after lie after lie after lie selling you products that you don't need and are going to end up in landfill. Why is this okay? Why do we live in a society that corrupts it? Yeah, I don't watch but I mean, TV. you know, and in anywhere you go, <laughs> it's insane to me that uh, people are able to lie and allowed to lie so much. And I feel like that's something you see more in the U.S. than you see, for example, in Europe, where you do have people that want to make money at all costs and will lie. But there are so many regulations in place that you know the lie are pretty. The lies are pretty limited. But here, Jesus, you can come up with you know, a, a butter and pretend it's some kind of cream that's going to cure your cancer. And it's like, yeah, sure. Advertise it on TV. Yeah. And, and it's, it's yeah. all about language. Like I saw this when, when I had my products, like as long as you don't specifically say like, okay, this is going to cure cancer, right. you can word things in ways that'll make people believe that this is going to help them. And this is going to be the best thing. And look, some of the things yeah. really are, you know, and, and again, like it goes back to like you said earlier about the um, puppy mills and there, there are some breeders that maybe are good. Maybe they are good, but what the problem is, like it takes away from the, like every time someone buys a dog in, in the, let's say even a good puppy mill or <laughs> yeah. from a good breeder, that takes away from them, that takes away from them adopting a dog in a shelter and then that dog ends up dying it's just this, yeah there is a, it's a it's, yeah there's a lot of disconnect balance, right? i have this conversation so often at the dog park or anything and i, I would have so so many times people have told me you know we wanted to do the right thing and we wanted to adopt a dog but we went to the shelter and it was all vicious pit bulls and then we didn't want to wait we wanted a puppy now so we went to the store and we bought a puppy and i think the rescue community has also a, a responsibility in this in that um over the years you know they've really raised the standard of who they adopt to so when you try to apply to adopt a dog you have to usually give landlord information and employer information and references and like it's it's like a background check right and 
most people don't really want to go through that. Listen, if I had to adopt now, I don't know that I would want to subject myself to all this. Because I'm, I'm part of the rescue community, I was able to adopt, you know, pretty much. Like, they knew me, you know, so it was, it was, the process was probably yeah. a little easier for me. But it's insane the amount of hoops that people have to jump through to get a dog. And then it's true, if you go to the shelter, the small, fluffy, cute dogs get adopted so fast that people always have this impression that all that's left are vicious pit bulls, quote unquote. And how do we solve this? I feel like we need to be a little more flexible sometimes in the way we adopt dogs to the community. Uh, I talked to a shelter once who adopted a dog to a homeless man. Do you know how many rescues would do that? None that I know. But that shelter decided we're going to take a chance and we'll be the backup. And so each time the man goes to a shelter uh, for the night, the dog runs away because he's not allowed in the shelter. And he, you know, he leaves him in the street with a friend and the friend sleeps the leash, you know, whatever happens. And uh, animal control picks up the dog and brings him to the shelter. And the shelter says, oh, we know him, you know. And, and then they locate the homeless man and they return the dog. It's a big commitment, but they do it because the man and the dog love each other. And they're a perfect match. And that dog had been waiting at the shelter for almost three years. So I think there's... Yeah. I think it's, a, uh, it's an unpopular opinion. I this, yeah. this is just my opinion, but I don't think dogs should be it's with tricky. homeless people. And like, and people, Listen, yeah, that's just yeah. my opinion from, from seeing in New York City, a lot of the, 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 the vagabonds that kind of go through New York City right. and they're traveling across the country. And I don't know, it just seems like they always... And I don't want to say always again, like it, it's individual, each person's different, but a lot of times the dogs are neglected, you know, they're on, they're outside in the New York heat, uh, when it's really, really hot and outside when it's really, really cold, like the elements in New York are, are difficult. Um, again, I, I guess there's differing opinions, think, but that's just, yeah, I think, you know, opinion. there are different layers to this issue. Um, for me, the biggest part is like, why should we deny someone the companionship of a dog just because they don't have the means, you know, maybe. Uh, I think most dogs that I see actually in the street, well, I, I think right? most dogs I see in the, in the street of New York are actually pretty well kept. And I think, you know, how amazing is it that these people who often have not much in terms of social interactions and they don't have a support system, they can have a dog that sticks with them no matter what. And I think it's beautiful. And I think, you know, if we feel like it's an issue, then we need more organizations that are going to support those communities. And there are rescue organizations that will provide vet care and food to these homeless, you know, people, dog. Uh, and I think that's a beautiful thing and we need more of that. Why, why should you not be allowed to have a dog just because you're poor or, or ill, you know? Well, not poor, not poor, but if you're homeless and, and, Again, like the dogs are facing the elements, like they can't sleep because right. dogs, for the most part, they're just sleeping, right? And and they'll have these dogs that are out in the elements. A lot of people, they can't take care of them. They can't take them to the vet. They can't get them because they don't even have the money to get themselves food. So they don't have money right. to buy food for the dog. <clears throat> I just think it's it, it makes like, even for me, like, in you know, I, I live in a house and you know, I work and a dog, it's a lot of responsibility. So I'm like, oh, it's yeah. like a kid, right? And um yeah, I don't know if I would be, you know, if I would want to take on that responsibility if I didn't have income, if I didn't have a house, if I couldn't provide basic things for that dog. You know, sometimes like the dogs need surgeries. And like you said, yeah. there's all these vet things. No, uh, I, I mean, I hear you. And it's yeah. a question that you have to ask yourself, like for yourself, when you want a dog, like, can I really 
integrate a dog in my lifestyle? Can I really pay for it? Like it's very expensive, especially in big cities. I mean, each time I, I go to the vet for the routine vaccine, I live with uh, $300 less in my bank account. It's insanely expensive. Here. Yeah, easy. So yes, of course, these are questions that if you want to be a responsible dog owners, you have to ask yourself. But I think when we talk about the homeless um, population, it's a slightly different uh, angle. Um, and I lost my train of thought, but I was going to, yeah. Oh, yes. If we think that maybe homeless people should not allow to, let's play with the idea that they should not allow to have dogs. Okay. So what about guide dogs? Do you think guide dogs have the life they dreamt for themselves when they are, you know, not when they're like, they have a job that is basically, I'm going to lead my master or I'm going to sniff for bombs or I'm going to have all these jobs like I don't know. It's just I'm not saying it's a yes or no question. I'm just I'm just toying with these ideas because these are questions I was confronted to when I documented the Chihuahuas of New York and these women dress up their dogs in like this super fancy expensive outfits and they spend thousands of dollars on sequin dresses for their Chihuahua and all that. And I thought, oh my god, this is so ridiculous. And I don't know if the does the dog hate it. Does the dog love it? Where do we draw the lines? How do we know? And so I think it's it opens that window to like, what does the dog want? Do you think the dog cares to be sitting in the heat with their master as long as they're with their buddy and, and they're like, we're in this together and they love their master? Or is that codependence and the dog just doesn't know any better and he's like, well, I guess this is my life. Like, we don't know these things. Yeah. Maybe the dog is like, well, I guess leading the blind is my life and it's my duty. Maybe they're proud of it. Maybe they don't care. Maybe they've been brainwashed into thinking that this is all they have in life. Um, <laughs> I think there's a lot of anthropomorphizing that we do. You know, we put our identities on onto dogs and, and we think that they think like we think. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's very interesting. It's um, I, I had a guy on here, uh, Mark Bekoff, uh, a couple of months ago, and he literally writes books on animal cool. psychology, animal emotions, and, and specifically dogs as well. And, you know, he, he definitely, that's definitely something that he brought up. Like there, we do a lot of anthropomorphizing. But why, why wouldn't we? And, These uh, dogs have been with us forever and we basically created them. We basically shaped the, the, the species or the subspecies of dog to be what we wanted from them. We taught them to hunt. We taught them to do all these things with us. We bred them so that their nose would be better. Their legs would be faster. Like their ears would be floppier. We did all these things. And when you read articles like um, how they did that research and they discovered that puppies learned, like the, the shape of the eyebrows in dogs changed over time so they could give us emotional responses. So the yeah. puppy eyes is actually something that, yeah. that evolved through time to create an emotional response with the human and to, to uh, improve bonding with humans. So it's not just anthropomorphia. I can't pronounce this in English, whatever. But, you know, the, the, the word you just used. It's not just that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would argue. I would argue that dogs have evolved to give us the emotional response that they need from us in order to be fed and protected, sheltered. Uh, it's, it's way more complicated than that. Listen, if they, if they evolved their freaking eyebrows yeah. so they could manipulate us into getting more cookies, we're like, <laughs> this is another <laughs> error. <laughs> Way, way too many cookies. Way I know, too it's many loud. So I feel like we could talk yeah. about this for another like five hours. But I, so I'll just ask like one last dog question and then we can talk a little bit about 
you and, and social media and you know what, what has evolved there. Um, so I, I, on the website, I, I saw that you went to all these different uh, countries, right? You went to South Korea, Columbia. I believe it was, and uh, Colombia and Puerto, Puerto Rico and yep. oh Mexico too. You know, what, what did you come away with? I guess it's it's two questions. A, I think, what did you come away with after seeing dogs in, in those situations? And is there one that, you know, specifically stood out where you just were like, wow, this is just so horrific. And then the other is like, how do you, you know, seeing those things, like how do you kind of deal with it right. afterwards? How do you pro um, process it? Wow. How many hours did you say we have left? <laughs> <laughs> Six, seven so hours. my first rescue experience was in Puerto Rico, so which is not international because it's part of the U.S. Right, so it's uh, Commonwealth, uh, but it's an island, uh, and it's definitely island dogs. Uh, I've been to other islands where I've seen island dogs. I have to say that my in my experience and the, the few islands I've seen, Puerto Rico was a little bit worse than other islands. Maybe I found that there was maybe a little more abuse. Uh, I think it's a very poor island where people struggle. The unemployment rate is through the roof. And they have a ton of stray dogs. Um, it's estimated that they had like 250,000 um, stray dogs on an island the size of, I think, Connecticut. I think that it's roughly the same size. Um, it's, I mean, you see stray dogs everywhere and they get run over and they get, you know, like so... I think it's a mix of there's a lot of poverty. And so with poverty, sometimes comes a little bit of abuse. Um, also because people don't understand necessarily uh, dogs, that they don't have the means to take care of dogs. There's no spay and neutering and all that stuff, right? So what I've witnessed in Puerto Rico was pretty harsh. Um, I think the worst, 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 worst place I've ever visited was in Puerto Rico. It was the shelter where my dog comes from. It was actually basically an animal control facility, they have, I believe, five on the island that are there to try and control the stray population a little bit, which means that every day they get truckloads of dogs and then they just mostly let them die of illness and, and, and everything and euthanize a lot. So I was granted access to their intake floor, which is basically where these dogs arrive. Um, I honestly, I have PTSD from it. I don't think I had fully realized how much it had affected me until I wrote my book, my Pitbull Flower Power Coffee Table book, where uh, there's a chapter in there that I talk about uh, two dogs that I uh, crowned with flowers in that facility. So I talked about that experience a little bit. Um, it was honestly the worst place I've ever seen in my life. And I can still like feel it in every fiber of my being. And what was the most horrible there, I guess, is that the staff there was so emotionally checked out uh, so they were like, for example, tiny puppies that would crawl and fall from their cages because the bars were too spread apart. And those were newborn puppies that were just crawling and they kept falling and I kept putting them back. And I, I asked, could you put a piece of plastic or cardboard or something? And the guy was like, oh, and then he grabbed a bucket and with his arm, he just went to put all those tiny little wiggly puppies into a bucket that was already full of puppies. And it was like one horrible thing after the horrible thing. And one of the staff looked at me and I was sobbing. I was taking photos and behind the camera, I was sobbing and sobbing. And she looked at me and she said, oh, I remember feeling like this, but I, I don't cry anymore. And it made me realize, well, that's, I think, the most horrible part of that experience. I don't blame the people. I blame really the system. And like, 
how far we let these things go. Um, I think these people are heroic to even want to be a part of, of a shelter like this or to, you know, a facility like this. It's kind of horrible. Um, now in Puerto Rico, they're doing a lot of spay and nurturing campaign. The uh, uh, Human Society has taken on this huge project and uh, they've been doing several rounds of spay and nutrients for owned pets. And you will see people line up like hours before the doors open to be there. And it's been so successful. It's amazing. So I'm really hoping that we're seeing the beginning of a new phase on the island. Um, but yeah, so that was that experience. I feel like, you know, before when I used to go to Puerto Rico, because I went for two years, I went maybe like 10, 15 times. Each time I would come back, I would get like so low and depressed for like a couple of weeks. I couldn't work. I didn't sleep well. And I never really understood what, what it was until later it hit me. Like, of course, duh. I was really absorbing a lot of misery and not just human misery. Dog misery reflects on human misery as well. Like if a society is healthy and happy, dogs are healthy and happy. So uh, that was that experience. So when I went to South Korea uh, last year, uh, I went on a dog meat farm, which is where they raise dogs to eat them um, for human consumption. So I went with uh, Human Society International, and I was really prepared, like, oh, this is going to be horrible. It's going to be, like, as horrible as that Puerto Rico shelter. Oh, my God. I braced myself. And I, I really wondered, like, should I really do this to myself? And it felt like, you know, this is an opportunity for me to witness something and to tell those stories. So I went. And that farm was actually not worse than some shelters I've seen and certainly not as bad as that Puerto Rico one. Um, I think it was an anomaly. Like most farms are really horrific. That particular farm was small and the farmer was younger and he actually cared for his dogs, which that's why I'm asking how many hours you have is a whole other layer that is super interesting to me. Uh, So this guy was basically, he would put frozen bottles of water with the puppies so they have something cool because it was in the middle of the summer and oh my god the temperature were i've never been so hot in my life oh it was so so hot and somebody passed out on 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 the team because it was just so hot and he would put iced bottles for the puppies like he really he tops to protect them from the sun and i was like how does this work that you're actually caring for your animals but you're also sending them to slaughter and so it was like a super interesting. It's the same as farm, it's the same as uh, you right. know, someone growing a pig farm, or a, you know. I remember there was a story I read a few years ago where um, I don't remember exactly Iowa or Indiana or somewhere, and there was a cattle farmer, and uh, there was a, a young cow that was freezing because it was it was winter, and he took this cow into a hot tub oh, wow. together with him so him and the cow are in this hot tub and he's you know making sure like she gets body temperature back up and eventually he saved this cow and i was like he's caring and saving and everyone was like what a hero what a hero but right. he's gonna slaughter that same animal right. in about a year's time so i mean and I, I, he just he was just looking after his investment it's not like right. oh i really care for this animal and i i think it's the same thing the only difference is we look at dogs not as food but we look at them as companions no i think and and maybe we should give a trigger warning for vegan people here when i talk about the dog meat farms like vegan uh people can get very upset because they feel like oh you should put that energy into Mm -hmm. the farming industry you know instead of um yeah obviously i'm a i'm a dog witness you know like i'm a dog 
so I feel like there's so much work I can do there. And I think I can build a lot of bridges. So I think once we empathize with the way dog meat dogs are treated, the bridge to caring about cows and pigs and all these other animals is very short. It's a very short step from caring for the dogs to that. And it's easier for people to care for the dogs because they have a stronger emotional attachment to them. And that's just how it is. And I know it drives vegan activists crazy when I say that, but that's just the fact of life. Like people have lived with dogs for thousands of years in their own bed sharing their food like sharing such an intimate relationship which we haven't had as such a big scale with other animals um well and also no one should dictate to you right, what to do with your time right like yeah if you want to invest your time in dogs which also there's a lot of work in in dogs right like like we said from from puppy mills to shelters to uh, to meat farms in south korea there's still a lot of work to be done so if we all neglected the work that needs to be done with dogs, yeah, I try would to be understand off, dogs, so. where they're coming from. You know, it's it's like imagine if you knew something that you knew intimately, like oh, this is the truth. Let's say nobody should eat meat, yeah. and then you see people eat meat or save dogs, and you're like, but what about the pigs and the cows? Of course, you have this this strong visceral reaction, and I I get it, but it's true. I also and I also feel like there's a lot of advocacy shaming. I call it. It's like you're advocating for the wrong things or not the right way. Or it's like, Jesus Christ, come on. Any type of advocacy for the greater good is a success and should be celebrated and certainly not put down. And we see a lot of that, especially in recent uh, weeks, you know, with everything that's been going on and all the civil unrest. There's a lot of advocacy shaming going on. And I think we need to stop that. That's ridiculous. But to go back to the dog meat, like it was such an interesting um, experience. And also, the, the guy was petting some of the dogs and, and they were wagging their tails to him. And he's clearly had like a very personal relationship with some of them. Um, so What's so that's the dogs? thing. Like after a while, I'm like, oh, can I ask him? I asked the translator to help me to communicate with him. I was like, I want to know like what's special about these dogs. And he had named some of them. And I'm like, wow. So he, can you tell me the names? And then he told me the names and then, I was like, that's amazing. This farmer, like he has such an intimate relationship with these dogs, like, and they clearly love him. Like, and so I asked, but why, what about these guys? He's like, oh no, these guys I don't care about. And I'm like, oh, so why these dogs are not the ones over there? And he said, oh, because these guys, I fight them. And I realized, so a lot of dog farms Mm -hmm. in South Korea also double as fighting dog operations. So basically... The dogs, I know, I was like, oh, there's a gleam of hope in all this pile of shit. And then, oh, no. Uh, It was like, it was very mind bending for me because I had like, I had, I had told myself a whole story and told me like he, with a huge smile, he said, oh yeah, I fight them. So he had named basically the Tosas, which are really big Mastiffs, Asian uh, Mastiffs. Um, And they basically are similar to pit bulls except he even told me like they fight better than pit bulls because you know blah 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 and then he went into great details on how toasts and pit bulls don't fight the same way and like i had to you know keep my face straight and, and and ask questions and like just be the journalist in that moment and everything in me was like uh. but it was is that so, the um, inus shiba inus uh uh the tosa inus inus i guess inus Smaller is, um, ones. is um uh it's like a word it means something yeah so the tosa inu is like the 
Yeah, it's big like a bigger mastiff, and they have like, like it's a big mastiff. Brown, it's a black, Japanese yes. mastiff. Yeah. Um, and they have the Jindos, which is also like a, a dog meat dog. Uh, Jindos look like Shiba Inus and all that those those guys. But also on dog farms over there, you can find any breed. They were Boston Terriers there. They were small fluffy dogs. Like there was a Golden Retriever on the farm that I visited. So you have a, a bit of everything. It's kind of a business of opportunity. Like at some point he pointed a dog to me and he said, oh, this dog is, you know, so funny. The story is so funny because one morning I came and there was this dog here wandering around on my farm. And I thought it was one of mine that had escaped. So I put him back in the cage and then I realized, oh, there's another one that looks just like him. So actually, no, it was not my dog, but I, you know, just put him in the cage and there he was. And so, yeah, it was very interesting. Um, With that project with HSI that I did though, they um, basically close those farms and they sign a contract with the farmers and they set them up to um, start humane businesses like vegetable, fruit, construction work, that kind of stuff. So this farm was actually destroyed and the guy uh, signed a contract basically uh, to promise that he would never work with animals again. And like, there's a bunch of things. So, um, so it, it has a good ending for all these dogs. <laughs> a lot of them were already adopted and, yeah. and some of them are still being, you know, rehabilitated and they might have to be in sanctuary for the rest of their lives. But in any case, uh, what was very interesting to me is I fully expected complete horror and it was really not that bad. It was dirty and it was very sad, but it was not as traumatic as Puerto Rico. Uh, Colombia was another amazing experience because uh, I visited this shelter, which basically operates like a sanctuary, and they have hundreds of dogs living together in one one big pen, basically. And to me, that was mind blowing. Like all these dogs that eat together and live together in harmony. Uh, I was, yeah, exactly. Like in, uh, Costa Rica, yeah, yeah. Another, which I'm, I'm hoping to visit yeah. at some point. Um, but it's similar for me. Like it's kind of my worst nightmare when people say, "Oh, this is heaven on earth." I'm like, uh, "What could go wrong, though?" <laughs> when you have like a hundred dogs around you, who are you know a little wild. They're not just tamed, you know, domestic pets that lived in your bedroom and your living room. These are dogs that grew up on the streets and have instincts of survivals. And so one of them actually bit me. Uh, and you know, and then all of a sudden a bunch of other dogs got a little rowdy around me and I'm like, I think I'm just going to exit this pen now. (laughs) Like, it's not like, I, I don't know why people think this is heaven because for me, who was attacked by a dog as a kid, like I, what I see is like, shit is going to go down. (laughs) But it was an amazing experience and I loved working with, with them. Uh, I'm actually going to do a fundraiser very soon for them because they run out of money and they have no thing to uh, feed their 300 dogs. But that's another story. Uh, but yeah, I've learned like every country has, I'm very interested in, in like, um, uh, what's the word? Like local dogs. I would love to go photograph the dogs in Bali and like all these places that have type of dogs that only exist there. Uh, like the Canary Islands. Oh, I would love to go and photograph the Podenko, which is a local dog. Uh, that would be a project. Unfortunately, the pandemic kind of killed all these traveling dreams. But I think if I had to, there's a life project that I would love to do is that it's kind of document local dog population. South Africa also has like wild dogs and like all this stuff I'm very interested in to expand beyond the US a little bit. Yeah, my, uh, my, my, um, my wife's mm. sister, she lives in New Delhi. And she's oh, yeah, pictures of, of street dogs 
all the time. But they're like they're, they're they look okay. Like they she she says like they they take care of the dogs. They're like they, there's people in the streets. They feed them. So like obviously it would be better for them to be in a house. But like she takes pictures all the time, and the dogs look like hmm. like no one really bothers them, hmm. and they look like for the most part they're being kept. It's interesting you said that, yeah, because I I'm in touch with there. a couple of rescues there, and and they've told me that it's they've seen the worst abuse in in New Delhi and in India. Yeah with the dogs than, than really? what they've seen in wow. other places. But I think everybody has different experience. I think it's hard when there is huge dog, stray dog populations and poverty. This is a perfect storm. Yeah. Uh, like in Puerto Rico, I remember one of the last trip I went, um, I was on the beach and there was this family eating a picnic and they were throwing, you know, stones and, and stuff at a dog that was there. And it was like a small, low rider type of dog. You know, they have a lot of these dogs in Puerto Rico that look like Labradors, but short legs and long bodies. It's like God started making a dog and then changed its mind halfway through. <laughs> Mine does look like that, actually, that it was supposed to be something else. And it's like, oh, let's do, let's finish this dog with like a body that doesn't belong there. So anyway, there was this cute little dog and he was covered in paint already. Like this dog had clearly been roughened up. And this family kept throwing stuff at him. And I approached him and I was like, why are you throwing stuff at this dog? Like he's clearly very friendly and all he wants is like hang out and maybe some food. And they were like, no, we hear that they, they can um, kill your children. And so I think that's what I mean by the mix of poverty and a lot of stray dogs create that, that difficult narrative. There's a lot of myths and because there's not as much access to information, maybe in some of those communities or vetting and, you know, reliable information, um, there's all these myths that are created that dogs will do this and that and and kill your babies and all that. And so it was very interesting in that moment. I said, you know, actually, he's just hungry. So if you take a little bit of food and put it all the way over there under the trees, I think he will leave you alone. And one of the kids was like a teenager. He said, oh, can you show me how to do this? And And I was like, come here, come here with the dog. And the dog started approaching me, wagging his tail. And the kid, his eyes like lit up and he's like, I had no idea you could communicate with the dogs. And I said, yes, of course you can like, you know, and so I, I showed him like how to go with your hand and bring food. And like, he's like, the dog is following you. I'm like, yeah, of course he's following me because, you know, I'm taking him where he wants, you know, he wants to eat. And, and, and then the kid was like, can I try, can I try? And then he tried and he was so excited. And, and that was like such a beautiful moment uh, for me as like humbling too. And like every community you go to will have yeah. different needs. You know, uh, like it's it's what we talked about er earlier. It's that nature nurture, right? We have, I'll see kids that are three, four year olds. And if their parents are not afraid of dogs and they're cool with the kid being around a dog, the kid just gravitates toward, especially like my dogs, because they're like big and you can squish them and like they're not scared of, of kids, you know, like with small dogs, maybe a kid can't do that. But with a big dog, you, he, he can't really hurt the, the dog. So he just like plays with it and touches it. And if I see, you know, and then I'll, I'll go by a family with kids and the kid just is like 20 feet away from the dog and it's already like hysterical. And it's, it's all the, it's like 99% of the time it's the parent. Like he saw the parent being afraid of dogs and then he started acting in the same way. And it's so unfortunate when those things happen. I feel like even if you're a parent that is afraid of dogs, like don't show your kid that because he's just going to imitate that same behavior and he's going to have this debilitating fear for the rest of his I life. Mean, fear is something you can't we learn. Control yours. Sure, we're not born 
you know, fearful of things like, you know, racism and bigotry mm-hmm. and all that stuff. They, fear belongs to that category. It's definitely yeah, passed down. It's passed down. And in, in, um, once I read something about pit bulls, like if you want to pe- people to not be afraid of pit bulls, you should breed them to look like, you know, Labradoodles. Because when a pit bull walks down the street, <laughs> immediately people pull their kids away yeah. and like hide and, you know, and so it creates its environment. Imagine for the dog, you're like just walking down the street and everybody always looks like they're scared of you. It's got to inform at some point your reactivity because you're like, shit, what's happening? What Did something happen behind me? Like, you must be wondering all the time, like, whoa, something is about to go down only because of people's response to you. Like when I fostered a, a paralyzed pit bull and she had a pink wheelchair, wheelchair and she was super cute, Frida. And one day this family was petting her and they had a little toddler that was like, ducky, ducky. And they were petting her. And then the dad looked at me, she's like, what kind of dog is she? And I said, like, oh, she's a pit bull. Oh my God. He grabbed his kid. He was like, oh, ah. And then he, he moved back. And I'm like, uh, it's literally the same dog you were petting two seconds ago. And I would have never exactly. let them pet her if I didn't know yeah. she was completely friendly. And okay with that happening, right? And she was super comfortable, like there was no sign. But just that word, like, switched everything. And it made. Yeah, if you would have said right. Labrador, it would and have been. And that's funny. what people do, you know? Uh, and one day, I, I, a mom wrote me an email similarly, so the, the other side of the story. And she said she was walking down the street with her scary black pit bull that people usually switch sidewalks. And then this mother and her little daughter came up to them and said, Oh, look at the doggy. And they asked about the name of the doggy and started asking questions. And the owner of the dog was like, I was so surprised because that never happens. And then they asked, so what kind of dog is she? And the person said, oh, she's a pit bull. And the little daughter said, she's not a pit bull. She's a flower dog. And apparently she had seen my work. (laughs) And she told her. And so the mom said, yeah, she's seen these photos and she's obsessed with them. And now she thinks all the pit bulls are flower dogs. And it was like this beautiful little moment that this person <laughs> wanted to share with me. And I was like, wow, see, that's, I mean, obviously children and dogs, let's be careful. Okay. I'm not promoting that you walk up to dogs and, and stick your you know, fingers up their nose. Um, let's be responsible here. But yeah. in the right setting like this, which was a responsible dog owner and a very calm, you know, wild mannered dog and a responsible kid asking for permission before touching the dog and all that. This was perfect. And it was such a beautiful little story. I was like, wow, who knew that an image could change like so much and be the vehicle for transformation. And I don't know. So it's, it's so good that you, that you mentioned it. Cause it was just it was something that I was actually going to be like my next question. I mean, social mm. media, especially Instagram for you has probably been right. as massive, right? I mean, I think everyone is trying to figure out how do you crack being quote unquote insta famous or whatever it is. And, and, and it's, it's, it's also something I'm split about. There's some people who are genuinely, they, they have something they're doing and they just so happen to put that out on social media. And then it catches on like, like wildfire and, and they become um, famous for that. And then there's other people that it's just, it's so vapid where they're just famous for being famous sake. Right. They're just famous on Instagram for not really doing anything or producing anything, but they're just famous on that platform or other platforms. And I think that's that's the differences. So for you, like, how did you see that happen? Uh, did you just start posting pictures of cute dogs with flowers and it just went viral? I mean, that, is, that, is it that simple? Uh, I don't know if anything is ever that simple, but I, for me, it started before Flower Power, actually. <laughs> 
my first project to go viral was called Wet Dog. And it was in 2013. Um, I basically, I had been volunteering with that Puerto Rico rescue for a couple of years. I was completely broke. I never had time to work on the project I wanted to. And I decided to quit my volunteer position and instead focus on my photography. And I told myself, for two weeks, I'm just going to take all the photos I can, all the projects I wanted to shoot and go from there. So one of those projects was to work with a groomer and I wanted to photograph the before after of the haircut of these dogs. And then they started bathing the dogs and I'm like, oh my God, these dogs look amazing, like wet and the fur and it's dripping and they look miserable. So I took those photos in like one afternoon. And then uh, I went back home to France and I was still like really depressed and broke and like with no idea what to do next with my life. And I showed those photos to my father um, who used to be in advertisement in the 80s, 90s. And he has a very good eye. And I really trust his judgment with that kind of stuff. And he said, wow, what is this? I'm like, oh, wet dogs, you know, just like a few photos I took. He's like, this is going to make your career. And if you don't go back like, and, and share it, and if it doesn't take, I don't know what will. Like, this is good. I'm like, wow, really? What does you think? So I went back to New York. And I found two blogs that I thought had a good mix of photography, funny, like that could be a good fit. And that I really liked their curator, um, their curation. So I sent Wet Dog. Within the hour, I got an email like, yes, this is amazing. We're publishing now. Tell us more. And I'm like, okay, well, here. Thank you very much. And I did not expect. And it went viral like crazy. And my first reaction was like, shit, I'm going to be known for this. Like, I was so disappointed because the light was not as perfect as I wanted it. Like, it was a quick series I photographed in one afternoon, like, not even really planning. I never thought I would take these photos. Like, it was weird. So going viral with that, it was like, damn. But then I got a book deal. Like, I got a lot of attention. So by the time Flower Power came out, almost a year later, I had learned so much on going viral what it means like i had built a website like i had you know i was like catching up with going viral um but also i had all these media contacts already that i had built on you know while i was going viral with wet dogs so because the difference was with the pitbull flower power project there was the angle of the controversy of pitbulls there was a lot of information there was the fact that these photos saved lives because they were helping these dogs get adopted so there was so many components to the story that journalists could latch on to and then a story because if you're a journalist and I used to be a journalist in the art right I I I directed my own photography magazine so I have experience of being on the other end of like what am I going to write about because having a beautiful image is not enough like what's the story what's the fight what's the controversy like what's the other layer that I can talk about in my article so you have to make it easy for people who want to share your work they need to have a clickbait type of thing especially in the era of social media where everything has to be so fast so I think that was the perfect recipe for pitbull flower power because it was Shelter dolls trying to get adopted. It was the pit bulls wearing a flower crown. It's a cute photo, but also it's scary. It's a pit bull. What? How did she do this? Like there were so many layers of intrigue and possible commentary. So yeah, uh, going viral was an amazing gift the universe gave me, but it also nearly killed me. Honestly, it was a lot. <laughs> the- yeah, because I mean that, and that's something I wanted to ask you on the onset, but I figured we'd get to it later. And it's a good thing I remember the question. But you know, you said that when you got to the U.S., 
you were kind of an introvert and, and you had a hard time with, with language and talking to people and it was really exhausting to try to talk to people. But then you, you have to go on TV and you have to talk to all these different people in English in front of a crowd. Like how, you know, how did you, how'd you? So it's interesting because the crowd actually doesn't scare me. I, I was, I was a opera singer for a few years in, in Switzerland. Really? Yeah. So I was a stage person. I find it so much easier talking to a crowd or on a radio show or even TV. It's a little scary because I don't like my face and it's like, oh, I don't know what to wear. Like the stakes are too high, but uh, it's much easier than a more intimate one-on-one kind of thing. And also talking about your work and something you're passionate about, it's so easy. Um, So it was actually not too bad. What was really difficult was all the answers that everybody wanted from me. Like I was this new expert on the subject and I'm like, uh, I'm just an artist who did a little project and everybody was so hungry for information. So I did read a lot. I educated myself a lot. And then I also, I was honest, you know, that these are subjective feelings. Like I'm not saying this is the truth. My project is not about saying everybody needs to adopt a pit bull. You know, this is not what the work is about. And so I think, yeah, I try to be honest through this process and genuine. Uh, but yeah, the project went viral for like two years, nonstop. Every few months, it would get picked up by a celebrity or a big media. And I would be like, no, it's happening again. <laughs> and then it would just go on. <laughs> so it's been amazing because, you know, I I got a career out of my work and I'm able to do this full time and it's opened so many doors. And I have a, a bit of a reputation now in the rescue uh, world so that I have access to stories and places, you know, and, and that's been amazing. Uh, I can, it's a business card now. It's a calling card that I can use if I want to work on new project. And that's the freedom that everybody, any creative person wants. Um, but it's, it was really exhausting. And I decided to do a coffee table book um, and nobody wanted, wanted to publish the book, <laughs> which was weird to me. Yeah. Because really? there was so much interest on social media um, so I ended up doing a Kickstarter and basically doing it myself. And that was a lot. And I wrote, uh, I forgot, maybe about 40 stories for the book. And that was a lot of writing in English, which was my first time writing in English like this. And also just going back to all these stories and reliving all these, you know, like the Puerto Rico shelter, all this stuff. So for nine months, I worked on the Kickstarter, then building the book, you know, finding the printer and like all the team to help me writing the stories, diving back into all these stories. And it was a lot, a lot. And when the book came out, I had a big exhibit and I did installations and um, I I worked on like this major immersive installation about shelter pitbulls. And it was so powerful and beautiful. And I loved doing it. It was basically, I compare it to like organizing my wedding to myself. You know, I hired a photographer and I, <laughs> I had all this stuff going on. It was a lot. Oh my God, a lot. And then after that, I collapsed. So it was like end of 2018. And since then, like I've just been taking things a little slower. Like it's, it was a lot. Going viral is no joke. It's all fun and games, but then it's also you wake up every morning to hundreds of messages from people and everybody has a slightly different request. 
And every day, all day long, you have to take this, make decisions and decide how do you feel about this? How do you feel about that? I want to use your photos for this. I want you to be on this. I want, to, uh, I want this from you. And like that decision fatigue hit me like crazy. Yeah, you have to be the only thing we don't get back right, is time. Exactly. You know, we we have to be almost selfish with our time, you know, I, and I hear this from so many people, from entrepreneurs, from business people, from photographers who are, you know, very successful and, and very busy. You can't give out your time to everyone all the time because that's exactly what that's what's going to happen. Yeah. You're going to have fatigue and you're not going to be able to, A, you're not going to be able to meet everyone. You're not going to be able to make everyone happy. So you might as well just use your time to the best of your ability, making yourself happy and doing what's best for you and the people yeah. around you. It always for- starts with you. And that's what you said also earlier. If you make a project that's truly meaningful to you personally, it's the best way to go about it because that's how people are going to connect to it. They're going to connect to a, a deeper level. Um, and so time is important. The other thing I would say, if you're a visual artist or create a visual something that uh, goes viral, be prepared to be abused in many ways. And I was not prepared for that. And my images, I mean, there's not a week that I don't have to take down products on Amazon with my photos on them. Like my photos are so really? popular that it, it made my career and it was amazing for me, but it's also meant that everybody else in the world wanted a piece of it. And yeah, I mean, I have folders of images like I would have, cause I had so many fans around the world of my work that they would send me photos. Oh, I've seen your photos on pillows in London. Oh, I've seen your photos on bags in Bali. Oh, like everybody always like, oh yeah, there's a t-shirt, a t-shirt brand in, in Brazil that has a whole line with your photos on them. And like, it never stops. Really? Yeah. And that was for me, it's impossible, impossible to, control. to control, very hard to control. I mean, I did my best, but that meant spending so much time and energy on it. For me, I just couldn't let it go because I guess it played with some, my childhood trauma and all that, where I was, I was abused and used and it just like for me it was like a reenactment of that of being used and abused and being ripped of what was the closest to me you know that project was my baby and all of a sudden everybody was using it for their own enrichment and their own you know purposes and that was uh you know the one thing about going viral that i would not wish on anyone it was the worst part for me and i i know that some artists would probably be like yeah whatever like some artists might not be as deeply affected by it that i was but for me like i would lose sleep over it i would get into this depression about it like really violated and abused yeah Yeah, i mean it's, it's 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 i mean it's Obviously, there's a creative and the personal aspect, but there's the business aspect. Too. You know, it's like if I created, if I created a business now and I have a product, and all of a sudden it's being copied uh, in China and being sold for half. It just it undervalues what I'm bringing, and it's not the same product, and it's just it doesn't have. It's not coming from the from the same right. source. So I can understand even on that level. You know, that's extremely disheartening when you put your your time and your soul and all the effort and energy into something and then you see being copied and sold in different places that's not... And I was also one... I've always been a one-person operation. So there's just so much I can do. And trust me, I have dreams. Yeah, There's so many products and there's a whole branding that I had in mind and there was so much more I wanted to do with this project. 
But as a one person operation, I just couldn't do it all. So whenever I, I would see people like run with it and do things, even things that I might have wanted to do, like it's even worse because it's like, <laughs> dude, seriously, like this is what I want to do with my own yeah. work. And you guys are just stealing it yeah. and running with it. Uh, but yeah, there's so much more I wanted to do with Flower Power. And I wish I had had a bigger support system in terms of like a team or, or something, an agent, a manager, like some somebody somewhere. But I've been alone this whole time and it, that was also like took a big toll on me. And then I wasn't really creative for the longest time. Like all I've done since 2014 almost is Flower Power. I've done almost 450 portraits, I think, in the series. Uh, traveled to like 15 states, I think, and a couple of countries. and. Yeah, it's just been like this huge operation. And now I think I'm ready for, I still love this project and I still want to do it a little bit, like low-key, because I, I'm not ready to let it go. Um, but I also definitely feel like the artist in me has been dying a little bit and suffocating, you know, from like the same, same, same every day. So I'm, I do need to feed the artist in me a little bit. Yeah. The soul, so, but you know, flower power is such an amazing thing because there's so much, and it's done, so it's much done a lot of too. good. A lot of people, you know, kind of I don't want to say rely on it, but it's definitely given a voice to people, lovers, adopters, families, shelters. It's helped at so many levels, and so many people, yeah, rely on it to some extent, and they don't want me to give up. Like they, they want me to continue. You know, and there's so many of my models that have been adopted after years. Like one of my most success, like recent success story that I really, really think is so special. It was this dog that waited 10 years. And then the family saw her in my book when they were flipping the pages and they fell in love with her. And they were like, we're also in the same state. And it turned out they lived like 15 minutes away from the rescue. So they went to meet her, the dog. They fell in love. And now she has a family. And that would have never happened without the book, without the photo, the flowers, the whole story. And I have so many stories like this now that it's special. You know, I, I can't just throw that away. So it's always like manage what you have and manage also the creative person in you that needs new pastures and excitement and new horizons. Yeah, I feel like we touched a lot about some of the potentially bad things on social media, but I feel like <laughs> If there's, one, if there's one good thing, it's definitely that it's, you know, bringing attention to certain topics like rescues and, and putting fosters in touch with, with uh, other owners and, and getting dogs adopted yeah. and having rescues have a, a, a page and a place and a platform for them to promote these dogs that need help. So I feel like in that as aspect and like also even like just promoting like animal right yeah. causes and, and stuff like that. I think social media has amplified that times a hundred from where it was. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Ago. And don't get me wrong. I love my community. My social media community is yeah. awesome because sometimes, yeah. especially in the animal rights, like you can get a lot of people that are a little intense, you know, <laughs> like, like yeah. all causes, you know, will bring a lot out of people, but the community that has built around flower power, these are people that are, respectful and kind and like they really like-minded and i feel like that's the most beautiful part of, of this whole adventure too is that i really was able to gather a community that yeah shares my values in many ways 
And yes, they get angry and loud when it needs to be, if there's a petition or, or something, but mostly like they're so kind and respectful and beautiful. Like I, that I really love. But I've been neglecting them a lot in the past couple of years because social media, it's like, it's killing me. So I need to step away a little bit. It's too much energy, you know, that has to go into it. Yeah, tech fatigue. Tech fatigue. It's happening to well, the pandemic, everyone, yeah. especially, yeah, especially with someone like you who has, and you know, a lot of other people, obviously, but people who rely on it, uh, in a sense, it's, you know, it's something... I don't know. Yeah, it's difficult, man, to just be connected to uh, to these machines all day long. Um, I was actually interviewing someone a couple of weeks ago, and he 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 came up with a a, a phone that basically doesn't have anything oh, on it. It's That's like what I need. Phone. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's called the, it's called the light phone. You Holy moly! Into it. I need and, one. Uh, yeah. He was saying like, yeah, it's essentially it's not going to replace the iPhone, but it's an addition too. So if you go, let's say, on the weekend somewhere. And you just want some peace and quiet, but you still want to be line. have the yeah. option of people connecting you. You can take this. Genius. And I think more and more. Yeah, I think more and more people are going to go with that route because there's definitely some yeah. tech fatigue and being on social media. Also, it's I don't think it's healthy for our mental capacities to be on this, especially on on some of the other ones like Twitter, which is a little bit more oh, vile yeah, and no, I don't horrific. Twitter. <laughs> Even Facebook, it's interesting. Like every platform has like a different. Uh, flavor of yeah, crazy yeah. and i feel like exactly. facebook was always very aggressive and it's like all the people that are very vocal and instagram was always kind of the la la land for me platform where people were kinder and yeah. sweeter and younger and like just open to possibilities so i, I would go like to different platform if i wanted like different <laughs> energy you know from people yeah 100 <laughs> percent. i think instagram's probably the least worst out of yeah all i think so too although it, it's changed a lot the past couple of years but especially since it was bought by facebook i think there's a lot more overlap now that there was but it's still it's still pretty decent community i like it i like instagram yeah, um right. but yeah i you know i think the tech fatigue thing it's, it's interesting you bring that up and i think also the pandemic you know has changed that because People are on screen all the time. And I remember at the beginning, like I kept getting all these emails from organizations I, I subscribed to that were like, webinar and like, hey, we're doing a virtual visit of blah. And I was being like, stop it. Do you think I want to be on the screen one more hour today? Like I literally go from my computer to my phone, to TV, to a meeting on Zoom, to whatever it is. Like, I, I think this is going to transform the way we interact with our screen. It has to. And I think we've been numbing ourselves a lot with our screens. I certainly have. And sometimes like, I'm like, if I'm not on TV or computer or my phone, like, well, what the hell am I going to do with myself? Like, I get anxiety just thinking about the emptiness. Or I catch myself, like, grabbing my phone, like, without even thinking about it. It's so stupid. Like, I don't want to live like this anymore. And I feel like the pandemic, hopefully, is going to be that, like, shift that we need. Because people are tired of the screen. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, it's a reset button. Yeah. And I think with that, we'll kind of wrap it up because I don't want to take no, any I mean, more I'm, of your time. I'm just also screen. thinking about you. Yeah, listener. No, no, it's oh, fine. Wow. This is why I think long format type of conversations is the way forward. I think when you get just sound bites of two, three minutes, I don't think that's what people want. I think honestly people want genuine conversations about interesting and, and important topics and you can only have those when it's an unfiltered type of uh, format and you can talk for a long time and really hash out you know the ideas and talk about it and 
come to, even if you don't come to a conclusion, at least the conversations right. out there. And I don't think you can do that with any other format except this format. So that's <laughs> something that I, I personally, I, I this is something yeah. I really love. So I'm glad, I'm glad to oh, have thanks. you. You know, what you do is, is amazing. You know, you really help dogs and, and pit bulls. And I think you're changing the attitudes towards them. So that's uh Thank that's you amazing. so much. And I, I, I hope I'm also able to help humans. Like that's definitely something bridging those relationship between dogs and peoples. I think people, I think we can really transform humanity in many ways. It's so easy to care for an animal, like to, you know, actually feel for the animal. But what about the person behind that animal? Like that's what I'm really interested in. And I hope that all the work I've done until now is gonna help me bridge those stories. And there's so many stories I want to tell about the people and and their dogs so um, i hope this is the next chapter for me very soon because there's a lot there's a lot to do it's amazing yeah i'll stay too i'm 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 very interested thanks um where can people find you on on, yeah everything is my name first and last name so sophie gammond which is the worst possible name you can spell on the phone (laughs) basically it has an m and an n and a d and like Oh, whenever I have to, and when I moved here, like I could never remember if G was G or J. Like I would always confuse the letters, so I had to like always sweat when I'm when I'm spelling my name. But it's S O P H I E G A M A N D. So gamand, as they say here. If I offended anyone, please remember that I'm French, and sometimes the words that come out of my mouth or the concept are not fully formulated in English yet. Like when I talk about poverty yeah. and the relationship between all that, like I, I sense that it's not quite what I want to say, but I don't know how else to say it. Mm-hmm. So I hope people yeah. understand where I'm coming from with all these things. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think I don't want to go into like too much, but just if I could end, I just think that just because someone might have been offended by something someone said, I think if the intention to offend is not there. If, if you're not, you know, if you don't want to, if you're not having this conversation to intentionally offend someone, then just because someone was offended, it it doesn't really matter because that's not right. the intention. The intention is to have an honest conversation about something. So people need to grow up just a little bit and not get offended 100%. by it. hundred percent. We're not trolls. Unless we're trolls, then yes, you can hate on us. Otherwise we're just humans and we have shortcomings and we have flaws and we're all trying our best here. So it's just, yeah. No one's perfect. We're all doing yeah. our best in this weird, weird world. And you know, when you get offended, living. see it as an opportunity to educate. Educate yourself, educate the other person, like have conversations, understand what did the person really mean? Why did I feel offended? Like all these things are super interesting. Sophie, thank I want to thank you so much. I had a, I had a really, this is one of my favorite yeah. conversations that I've had by far. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll do it well, again yeah. in the future. I'll put all. All your information in the yeah. show notes so people can easily find you. And yeah, I man, saw so the much. when I, I saw the list of the people you interviewed before for previous episodes, I was like, why would yeah, you yeah. have me on there? Like, yeah, those is amazing people. Uh, yeah, Christine, you're well, awesome. You know, thank you so much for having me. And obviously, as people can hear, I love talking about my work. <laughs> There's so many things, <laughs> incredible things to say. And yes, we'll have to do another episode in the future, maybe when I have my next project. Sounds like a plan. Thank you so much for inviting me again. This was lovely. Very interesting. I love this conversation too. I had a great time. We'll we'll definitely be in touch and we'll definitely try and do it again in the future. All right. You take care. Give some cookies to these doggies.
Oh, 100%. <laughs> All right, bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.